Coming to you from the TLD studios in Temecula, California, it's the Whiskey Throttle Show, taking you deep inside the lives of the legends and leaders of our sport. This week's guest is brought to you by Yamaha, the leaders in the power sports industry. Motocross bikes, street bikes, adventure bikes, side-by-sides, quads, boats, generators. Yamaha sets the standard. Yamaha revs your heart. Method Race Wheels, the strongest, lightest, fastest wheels in off-road. Method dominates the off-road market with wheels for your truck, sprinter, Jeep, or UTV. Go to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle for 20% off your order. Troy Lee Designs, built for the world's fastest racers. TLD blends elite level protection with industry leading style and performance. Moto, bike, helmet paint, casual wear, whatever your passion, Troy Lee Designs is waiting for you on the next level. Nihilo Concepts, enhance your riding experience with superior products like the Start Stop Conversion Kit, Fuel Pet Cocks, Frame Grip Tape, Lever Grip, Grip Donuts, Secondary On Switch, Billet Foot Pegs, Billet Throttle Housings, and so much more. The Hilo Concepts produces exceptional products, all of which are made right here in America. And by SKDA. SKDA is the ultimate destination for exceptional motocross graphics, customer service, and artistic excellence. Trust them to elevate your ride and showcase your individuality on the track, making every ride an exceptional experience. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Whiskey Throttle Show. I'm your host, David Pingree, and we're joined today with, uh, I guess he'd be basically the godfather of vintage motocross here in the United States, uh, Rick Dowdy of Vintage Iron. Rick, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Very much. Appreciate Stoked to have you on the show. Uh, you've got a really interesting story, and and I'm always intrigued by guys who've really seen this sport evolve uh, from essentially its inception in the U.S. Right. to where it is now and still involved, and you're one of the few guys that can really say you've kind of ridden just about everything, uh, can speak to those older bikes with a lot of knowledge and uh, intelligence and uh, that I don't have. So excited to have you on. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, we start every show with the Method Race Wheels front-end chatter. If you guys happen to be in the market for wheels for your truck, Sprinter, uh, side-by-side, Jeep, whatever you got, you can get 20% off. It's a really good discount if you're buying a full set of wheels. Go to methodracewheels.com forward slash whiskey throttle. They'll send you a code for 20% off. So great stuff. Uh, the uh, Definitely the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels when it comes to off-road racing. So check those guys out. Um, you just finished, you're doing some promoting now. We just had one of your events, uh, the motocross revival. Right. Um, tell us about that and kind of what, what the, the genesis of that was. Well, the whole revival concept, um, was, you know, we were trying to harken back to when the sport was new and, and for those folks that weren't around during that period of time, motocross was huge and much, much bigger than it, than it is today. Um, I always tell people that, you know, I used to race at Bay Mare, which was a, a, ta- a track um, in Southern California. And I would be in Division 7 of 125 Junior, and there were 40 guys on the gate. So there's 240 novice, 125 yeah. novice guys. Just that, right? Yeah. That would be a good turnout today by itself. It was it was mammoth. I mean, you would have to go. You'd have to go get in line to go to your gate an hour and a half before your moto. Mm-hmm. And is that? Do you think that the sport is bigger 
was bigger back then in general, or was it just racing that was bigger? Well, I because I, I still feel like there's a lot of people involved in riding, and the the stadiums fill up when we have a big pro race. But you go to any local racing, it's just like you said, it's 150 people, maybe right, 200 people. That's a good turnout for a local event now. Well, you, all you have to do is look at the numbers of of sales that they have annually, and it's a fraction of what it used to be. Is that right? Yeah, mm. but. You know, the, everyone could do the sport back then. Mm. You know, the, the bikes were affordable. Most of the time they were used. A lot of times they, they were street bikes you took lights off of. But everybody could do the sport. Track wasn't too difficult. It was a family environment. And, and it was new and fresh. And, man, it was just, it was a surge of, of people wanting to ride motocross. Mm. It's kind of a bummer. You know, um we we talk about this a lot on the show where I feel like that was something that w- that made the sport healthy, right? Um, because the camaraderie that you'd have at a race, uh, the 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 sense of community, you don't get that just going to the track on a Tuesday and practicing, you know, which is what everybody. And listen, I'm guilty of it. Right, I'm too busy to race on the to spend a whole Saturday racing, so I go get my laps in. I'll run down to the track, do a few motos, and I'm home by noon. Um, but you you miss that sense of community that used to be built at the races. And there's nothing like racing, right? No. I mean, you can practice, practice all day long, and it's fun because there's no pressure, but there's nothing like racing. That's why, you know, the American Retrocross um, series that we run, uh, our, our motto is done by one. So we get folks in, practice on schedule, races start at 10, we're done at 1 o'clock. Oh, is that right? Yep. And for that very reason, because most people have other things they have to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I'm a very reluctant promoter. I never wanted to be a promoter. I just got tired of going to crappy races and I got tired of waiting and bad scoring and all that stuff. So instead of just bitching about it, I tried to do something about yeah. it. Right. I love it. Well, we'll, we'll talk more about the series and, and how folks can get connected with it out here anyway. Um, I want to talk about something else. The term vintage racing, you know, or, or vintage motocross right. has to continue to evolve, right? Because when I started, vintage meant, oh, dual shocks and, you know, the underpipes and all that stuff that I was kind of before my time. Right. Now the bikes I raced on during my pro career, that's vintage, right? I mean, it, it has to keep changing. So are you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just too, <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, when I was on the, the board of directors for ARMA, I brought that point up numerous times to the point that Dick Mann passed a motion to silence me from bringing it up anymore. Oh, really? And I'm like, you know, my dad was in the Model T Club of America, and he was a big Model T enthusiast. Well, guess what? They're a fraction of what they used to be because those guys all died off. Yeah. And I didn't want to see vintage racing go the way of the dinosaur, right? And so you have to chart a path that makes sense going forward from the point you started at. Mm. And, and and Dick Mann really was uh, the guy that got vintage racing going in California. And then a- across the country, he and I traveled all over the place, you know, kind of doing the Johnny Appleseed thing, getting it going. And But his his vision of it was actually... Before two strokes, his vision was kind of how they had it in Europe, which is they called pre-65. Mm. Well, 
We didn't even have motocross here in 65. You wouldn't have enough for those bikes, I can't imagine, to... Well, motocross wasn't here. Yeah. So you, you can't take Europe's model and make it work in the United States. And and I understand why they went to pre-75, you know, seven inches of front travel, four in the rear, and that was kind of the the business model. And, and, and then they tried to build classes out backwards from there. But he told me numerous times that I... I wish we never even had to include anything past 1965 because for him, right, he was 20 some years my senior. For him, that was his vintage period. But what I would come back with is we're, we're directors of this organization and, and we're charting its future. We can't just look backwards all the time. There has to be secession planning, right? Right. And um, yeah, I ended up being a, a black sheep, but I'm kind of mm. used to it. <laughs> Sounds like you've never been afraid to kind of speak your speak your mind. And well, when I when I don't don't know what I'm talking about, I'm pretty quiet. Mm. If I have a pretty good idea, well, my opinion's worth as much as somebody else's. And if I'm in a director role, it's I'm obligated Absolutely. to to do what I I think's best for the organization. Mm. Well, we'll talk a little bit more. Of that I'm I'm in the middle of of uh, rebuilding, as you know, a, a 1986 YZ125, and you know, for me, that's vintage. Like that's what I think of um, the stuff that's all. You know, it, it's just like Dick Mann, right? He had that window. Well, this is what I remember, right? When I was a little kid watching the guys race these, so that's vintage to me. Well, those 80s, that's vintage to me. Right. So that'll just continue to change over time, right? Um, but but as a club. You have to evolve with that. You can't be just like, no, this is what vintage is. Right. Because it changes every single year. Because the, then you're going to have a diminishing return <laughs> yeah. on your membership, right? Um, okay. Well, we'll get, let's get into your story here. First, I want to sh- uh, just give a shout out to our website. If you guys haven't been over there to see the content we're making at whiskeythrottlemedia.com, check it out. All kinds of off-road stuff now. Uh, there's a moto tab, an off-road tab, and then obviously all the Whiskey Throttle shows can be accessed through the site. Uh, we have merchandise over there. There's a forum. Um, great stuff. Go check it out. We're doing some some fun stuff. And the Vintage Iron Project, which Rick has been uh, involved with, uh, where we've interviewed different motorcycle collectors with some crazy vintage bikes, uh, a lot of championship bikes, uh, Michael Holligan and um, Hugh Parker, Hugh Parker our, our friend here in the Bay Area that had Wardy's bike. We got Wardy on his championship winning KX125. Uh, that was a pretty neat. That was experience. a great day. Uh, so all this is brought to you by Yamaha and, um, we appreciate their support. If you guys are looking for a motorcycle, start there, please. Um, Rick, tell us where you grew up. Well, I was born in Florida, uh, to an Air Force family and, uh, ended up moving to Australia, um, five years later. And, uh, it was a good experience as a young kid. We had kangaroo for a pet in the backyard and geez. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. And it ended up going back to Australia later in my life and, uh, really love it down there. Then we moved to Washington, DC. My dad worked, um, at the air base where they fly the president in and out and all that jazz. And then, then we got the, uh, transfer to Edwards Air Force Base. And that's where I started having a, you know, lust for motorcycles because you've got a backyard that yeah. goes on for. So prior to that, you hadn't really gotten into bikes at all. No, I was, I, I liked cars. And what, what is the, yeah, I actually recently had an engineer that I was working with who's, who was, uh, his dad was in the military and he was telling me how often they moved. And I'm like, man, how do you even, right about the time you start making some friends and get some right. regularity in your life, 
poof, you get up and move again. And it's not like you're moving a couple of towns over. You're no. going from Wisconsin to Australia to right. And you know. it, it, what I the way I try and explain it to people because it, it it's pretty traumatic as a kid. Yeah. It, imagine everything that you know on your daily basis just disappears, and the only thing left is your family because you're just transported to another existence. Right. It's very surreal. And it happens over and over and over. And so, and, and during that period of time, there was no internet. There was no yeah. emails, you know, to make a long distance call was, you know, you had to take out a loan to make a, a long distance phone call. Um, so it was a different world then. Um, and it was, it was bothersome enough to me that I sought out a life and things in my life that were stable, mm -hmm. that, that didn't change all the time. Um, at, but you know, it's the life of a, a yeah, a little brat. Yeah, it just seems like it would be very hard. I I moved from Montana to Arizona when I was ten, and that was just that one move. Right, man, it was difficult. You know, just um, you feel so vulnerable as a kid, like new kid in school, right? new kid. No, you don't <laughs> know anybody. Everyone's already friends, and you're trying to fit in. Man, it's hard. Yeah, I was always the new kid. Yeah, it's a. It's not a great feeling. And my name was Patrick, is Patrick. I just go by Rick. Oh. And uh, I would constantly be new in school. And, you know, on the roll, on the roster, I was Pat. And they were always looking for a girl. So I'd, I'd go weeks without even acknowledging that I was there. <laughs> oh, my God. My folks would get a call. Hey, uh, your kid's not attending. No, he's, he's there. He's just not answering. <laughs> <laughs> he's just sitting quietly. Because you know uh, you didn't want to be branded with that, right? Yeah, no. Yeah. Did you have siblings? Yeah, four. Four siblings. Yeah, Catholic family, so. Okay. You're the youngest, oldest? Um, smack dab in the middle. Oh, okay. Um, and what did you do pre-bikes? You said you were into cars. What else were you interested in? Well, I mean, that was grade school, so, um, I mean, cars were cool, so something they didn't have. But my my dad being in the Air Force, and, and he was in private aviation, also, um, I flew with him a lot. Oh, really? Yeah, both in in small aircraft and then gliders. He was very much into um, that. They call them sailplanes now, but gliders. We would do that every Saturday morning, and hmm. you know, he basically was teaching me how to fly when I was a kid. Okay. And did you get your pilot's license now? Nope, never oh, did. Okay. I mean, I because I was flying without having one. Right. You yeah. had him in the in the front seat, and I was in the back, or vice versa, and um, and with my dad, it was, you know, we didn't just fly in a straight line. He's like, okay, you want to learn how to do a loop? Well, hell yeah. Right. Pull back on that stick. Well, I was small enough that I'd be upside down. My head would be against the canopy and the seatbelt would be down to my knees. Oh no. And, and, but you know, you, you learn to accept that, that risk, right. For the thrill. And that transferred over to motorcycles pretty yeah. well. Huh. Well, that's interesting. So what was your first bike and how old were you? Well, we had moved it to Edwards out in the desert. And um, first bike was a Taco 22. So it cost $139. And uh, we rode the crap out of it. Yeah. And the, the, the rear sprocket was almost the same size as the rear tire. Mm. So anytime you turned to the left... And it hit a rock, you broke the chain. So we got really good at fixing chains. Anytime you, you went out for a ride, you had a pocket full of master links. Uh, but, you know, 
we we had a whole group of kids and you were either a taco guy or you're a bonanza mini bike guy or whatever and uh, what what year would this have been 1968 okay and um we would take those they had lawnmower motors for the yeah. most part right? we'll start right we're... briggs briggs and stratton or tecumseh and we would take those things and ride 20 30 miles right because you'd have a gallon of gas they'd go forever yeah we'd drive we'd ride all the way out to like willow springs get gas and ride back it'd be all day deal and as long as you're home before dark yeah you're good yeah never had any incidents where you guys someone crashed out in the desert oh yeah yeah but you know you just kind of patch them up and get them home and <laughs> rub some dirt on and, it and you you didn't have an option you're 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 20 miles out there so uh You'd never let your kids do that today. Well, so I grew up in Montana, you know, 70s. I born in 75, but it was the same kind of vibe up there. I, I took off and whether it was motorcycles or bicycles, we were just gone all day. Yeah. And my, you know, there's no phones. As long as I, if I went to a buddy's house, I checked in or I was home before dark. Right. Those are kind of the parameters. Yeah. And uh, so I try to give my kids a lot of leeway. They have e-bikes, they have a golf cart. And I'm like, yeah, all right. You know, I, I, something my dad always said to me, I'll give you enough rope to hang yourself. <laughs> and my kids have hung themselves. They're currently grounded right now, which I won't get into, but I do give them room to go and make those mistakes um, and, and have a childhood because, man, we were kind of the last ones that really got to live like that, pre-phone, pre-all that bullshit. Yep. So- and and, and, it, and it's good because it, it teaches a lot of self-reliance and it gives you that explorer spirit, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we would just like go a direction. We didn't have a set destination. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. What a cool way to grow up. Um, did you get into racing right away or was it just, you guys just really were enjoying riding? Well, you know, we were pretty young, 12, 13 years old and, and there was a whole pack of us that were kind of growing up and then starting to get into motorcycles. And um, I, the first time I ever rode a motorcycle, we went out uh, with another family for a picnic. This is on the base. Okay. And Edwards was where they tested all the stuff, right? I mean, that's where they, they the shuttle came from. But, but way before that, there was the X-15 and a bunch of other cool stuff. They had a rocket test center out there. And, um, and, and so we would go out and ride in that area. And one of the, uh, one of the officers that, that came with us that day had a motorcycle and he said, Hey, you want to ride it? Well, I've only been riding a mini bike. It's like, hell yeah. And man, first time I rode it and I'm, you know, it was probably a 80 CC, whatever with the lights taken off. It's like, this is what I want to do. I mean, everything else was. It was like a light switch, huh? Yeah. Oh, it was just unbelievable. The power, the feeling, the independence. I mean, it was big boy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was life-changing. And and I've never forgot that feeling. I've had it a few times since then, but they've all been related to motorcycles, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it was was the deal. So what what was your first race? Um, First race was, um, well... It wasn't really a race. Okay. They used to have these things called, um, oh, they were like club days and they would have different, they'd have a barrel race, they'd have a trials, they'd have a, you know, desert loop, they'd have all, all sorts of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
it was the it was the club that was on the base, and I told my dad, "Hey, I want to ride out there and watch this to see what it, that the whole thing's all about." And he goes, "Okay, just don't race. You bet." So I went out, and I had no intention of participating. And one of the guys is like, "Hey, kid, you want to try it?" And it was a barrel thing, right? And I said, "Well, okay." So I did it. I didn't enter. So I was technically <laughs> not racing and I did it. And they were like, Hey, you just won. I'm like, what do you mean? You just went through the barrel thing faster than anybody in the, in the small bike category, which back then trail bikes were hundred CC and less. Yes. I was riding like a Honda 65. Okay. With the lights on it. And, um, they were like, well, why don't you try the, the trials thing? I go, okay. But I'm still, I'm not entering. They're just encouraging me to try it. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, they gave me a trophy because they said you won this small bike class. Okay. Well, I was like, oh shit, what do I do with that? Right. So I had my buddy take it to his house. Dad's going to be pissed. Oh yeah. So uh, I, that lasted about two weeks and I was like, I, I, I couldn't stand the idea that it wasn't sitting on my dresser. Right. So I figured I'm just going to take the punishment, brought it home, sat it on the counter and waited for my dad to come home from work and he's like what's that and i told him he goes yeah i told you not to race and i said yep he goes all right you're off for two weeks you can't ride I'm like oh yeah i mean i figured at least you knew something was coming yeah just happy your ass wasn't bright red at that point yeah yeah <laughs> paint my back porch red so he um yeah, he, he there was no spanking at that point. He oh yeah, he knew how to get to me. Mm. Right, that was he thick. found your uh... yeah. <laughs> so, but my mom told me like you know two days later, your dad every party we go to that's all he talks about is that mm -hmm. you that you won, and uh, he still got to punish you though for disobeying. But he, but he right? wouldn't let me ride, yeah. and uh, and it's funny because I did an interview for an article I was writing um, with DeCoster, and he told me the same story. His dad told yeah. him, don't ride. And yeah. he went and did it anyway. Yeah. And then he's reading the, the area newspaper and <laughs> it says he, that he won. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you got to win though. Otherwise you're in really deep shit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Roger told us that story on his show and uh, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Because he hid the bike at his buddy's house. He didn't leave, leave the bike at the house. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that was your kind of your first event. Then did your dad come around and go, all right. Yeah, eventually he, um, you know, he, he could see that I, I, I was very focused, uh, you know, I, I was getting decent grades, I, but I, I wanted to ride. So, and I had met a couple of uh, lieutenants on the base, young lieutenants that were just new into motocross. One had an AJS and the other one had a, a Husky and uh, they kind of mentored me and, and, and got to know my dad and they were like, Hey, we'll we'll walk you guys through this. So we went to a place called Dead Man's Point, which is out by um, Victorville. Okay. Apple Valley area. Yep. And um, they used to have races on a pretty regular basis. It was pretty close to the base. And um, I was fish out of water. I had, you know, my bike, I had a Yamaha 125 at this point, which was not a race bike. It was an Enduro. We pulled the lights. So I had electric start. I mean, it was a, it was a yeah. trail bike. 
And I had big, tall desert bars because that's what you did. You stood up and rode in the desert, right? And here I am with these like ape hangers and all these other guys are on motocross bikes. And, uh, you know, I was okay in the dirt and the rough, but I'd never seen mud holes before. And, and back in the early days of motocross, they, every track had a mud hole. Yeah, Supercrosses used to have mud holes even. Yeah. Or, or multiple mud holes. Yeah. At, at, at Dead Man's Point, they had two. I crashed in both of them every lap. Every, every <laughs> lap. And we had to do three motos. After Moto 2, I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm not really cut out for motocross. I'm not going to do this. And then my mentor guys are like, yeah, you are. Because that's what motocross is about. It's about being tough. Mm-hmm. And you can't quit. Like, you know, every time I fall down, I the, the mud goes into my air cleaner and clogs it up. And I foul the plug and this. And, yeah, it's motocross. It's tough. And that day I was like, man, if I make it through this day, maybe I'll become a motocross guy. And, and I did. And, um, you know, I, I learned how to work on a bike because my dad was, you know, master mechanic. He was head of, um, maintenance at, at Edwards. Hmm. So, uh, you don't get to that point without a lot sure. of experience. Did he help you quite a bit and kind of build a path? It seems like you have a passion for working on bikes and the mechanical side as well. Yeah. I don't think I'll never be to his level. Um, because he, you know, he grew up where they had to fix everything, yeah. right? And I went through depression and all that. You didn't. You There's didn't, no money to fi- have somebody fix it. You fixed it. You you yeah. fix everything. You yeah. fix the tractor. You fix the yeah. washing machine. You fix everything. So, um, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'll never be at his level, but he yeah. he instilled that with me, and he also made it real clear: if the bike's not ready to go, you're not going. Yeah, you better prep it. And he also was like, "Hey, you need to um, you need to broom out the the garage before you go riding." And I made the mistake of doing a half-ass job one time. Hmm. And he's like, "Did you take everything out?" Oh, well, no, I, I there wasn't much dirt back there. He goes, "I told you to clean the whole garage, right? You're not going riding today," and that hurt. Hmm. And I had to take everything out of the garage, broom it out, and then sit it on. So my shop's pretty clean. Yeah. <laughs> those are, man, those are lessons though. And, and I've, I've said this before. I, I had this conversation at some point on the show. I feel like generationally, right. We keep getting softer, softer and softer. And, and I'm a part of it. I can't do the stuff my dad could do for the same reasons you're talking about. Right. He could rebuild a car engine because he had to, right. They, they, you know, when they were younger, you just, if I wanted to fix, I had to fix it. You right. read the manual and you just figure it out electronics, uh, he could build a house. I mean, he could do anything. Um, maybe not like a, at a craftsman level, but he could get it done. Right. Man, I just go plumbing. Yeah. I don't know. Call, call a guy electricity. Uh, I don't know. Call somebody. Right. I hate myself for it. Like it sucks, but, uh, and I just thought, well, I was just so busy with racing that I didn't have time to take all that other stuff in, but it just seems like everyone I talk to is like, oh yeah, I can't do what my dad could do. Right. Well, I mean, and all of that's true, but like when he would come uh, visit, he'd like want a list of things to work on. He wasn't happy just <laughs> yeah, visiting, yeah. right? Yeah. What's broke? I got to fix it, right? And like, work ethic almost was just, that was just culture back then. Yeah. Yeah. And and he wouldn't give it up, even in his 80s, right? And and I'd be like, dad, look, um, there's a there's a valve in the uh, in the shower 
that's leaking, but I've got a plumber coming next week and he's got, we can do it. I'm like, Dad, <laughs> I, I don't want to start getting the hammer and tile out and, and that I don't have the, the tools to, to, you know, change the valve. We'll figure it out. And then he, I'd go to work and he'd be calling me every hour. Hey, you got to come pick me up so we can go to the, you know, the parts store. Yeah. Like, shit. That's what he lived for is to fix stuff. That's funny. Uh, yeah, it's just I love hearing those stories because I'm a lot of this sounds really familiar to my childhood. Like uh, I brought home bad grades one time. And my dad sold everything. Oh yeah, and I didn't ride for eight eight months, and I never got bad grades again. So as painful as those moments are, you remember it today, and you and your garage is still tidy, right? Yeah, so. you know I tried to bring my kids up that way, to the for the most part. Yeah, got a lot of resistance, but. Um, yeah, I, I made some pretty firm rules. That you you know, especially when they got cars. Mm. If I ever catch you intoxicated, I'm not. You're not going to get on uh, suspension. Your yeah. car's done. Yeah, and I I sold one. Yeah, you got it. You have to. Um, so that was kind of your first race. Did you guys then get into racing pretty regularly? Well, that was. Uh, the fall of or summer fall of of sixty nine, and uh, my dad got orders to go to the Philippines, mm. and sometimes they would go ahead of the family, right? And they'd be there because they needed to start the job, and the family would follow um, six months later. And that was the that was the case. So man, it was full throttle. Go to as many races as I could. Because I, I had these two lieutenants. Are you selling bikes then at this point? Like you guys sell everything and go down with just. Well, no, my dad's my dad's in the Philippines. We're still in Edwards, and and I've got my my bike. But are you going to have to sell it? Like when you guys were moving, it was oh, like no, every, a yeah. fire sale, everything. Yeah, they they only allow you like one vehicle, which is usually your car and, and your suitcases. Yeah, and then tools and stuff like that. But but while my dad was away. You were on it. I was racing as much as I could race. And yeah, it was, we were racing all over the place. Okay. And and these lieutenants were just, you know, teaching me the ropes. And yeah, I know you had Gunnar Lindstrom on a uh, show recently. He was my first motocross school. Oh yeah? Yeah. There was a track out where LACR is now called Anzac. And it was 1969. And he and Mark Blackwell, who you've had on before, um, mm -hmm. were running the school. I went to the school. I didn't even have a bike. I would just walk from place to place just to listen because yeah. one of my buddies was going and, you know, I was just trying to sponge up as much knowledge as I could. Yeah. But yeah, he was something else. Oh, that's cool. Different time too, where now if you wanted to, if you're like, hey, you know, how do I go through a corner? You could get on YouTube and there's a million videos, half of which are probably bullshit. Yeah. There's online, you know, Elevate, that we have an online coaching thing. There's you could hit a coach, just throw a rock and hit five of them at Glen Helen on any given Thursday. Back then, I got to believe there was a, a, a vacuum of, of knowledge on especially motocross, right? It was so new that when you had a guy like Blackwell or Gunner, you're like, let me just take, tell me everything you know. I want to know everything. Right. And all we knew is those guys were really fast and they were really fit. Mm. And, uh, and during that period of time, the Swedes were dominant. Mm. Um, and yeah, hey. Motocross was just so new; it you just didn't even it didn't even hear it. It wasn't even in the popular lexicon, right? Yeah. Um. So, 
it, it, and it wasn't like the shops were all full of motocross bikes for sale. Hmm. The desert racing was big, but motocross was just starting and, uh, everybody had their interpretation of what it was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, but, and it was popular because it, you could see it all. Yeah. What were the races? Like, were there proper motocross races going on or was it kind of like scrambles still or off-roady kind of stuff? I mean, in, in 68, 69, you know, it was pretty, um, established. I mean, you know, the, the earliest ones were probably 66 and, you know, I have a poster from one of those races and it actually took place, um, in the riverbed by my old shop in your Belinda. Hmm. And it says right on it, knobby tires recommended. <laughs> and they would just take, you know, a piece of ground and put up some banners yeah. and go, there you go. Have at it. Were there any motocross parks open? Like Glen Helen used to be called Arroyo. Was that open at no. the time? Was Indian Dunes or Saddleback or Carlsbad? Indian Dunes opened late in 69. Um, okay. And, and my friends went there, um, those lieutenants, um, the day they, they opened and it was a mess. Mm. So I never got to race there then. Um, I, I think Saddleback was going, although I, I never made it um, to Saddleback during that period of time. So it was a lot of little, you know, yeah, podunk places. There was a, there was a, a track uh, called Pozo in uh, Bakersfield, uh, but you had to drive yeah. hmm. for pretty much everything. The, one of the biggest tracks was probably Bay Mare which they ended up having the nationals at later on. Hmm. And where was that? Like Fillmore. Fillmore. Okay. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Interesting. There was a lot of those that I never got to. I'm so bummed I never got to ride uh, saddle or Saddleback or Indian Dunes. Indian Dunes in particular looked really fun. It, I mean, it was. They had two different, they had an international course and the Shadow Glen course. And um, it was, you know, that night racing was huge back then. Mm -hmm. I mean- I, I'm sure with Gary Jones' story, um, he talked about how often they could race. I mean, there were six, seven nights a week. Yeah, and making really good money. Yeah. Really, for the day, they were making fantastic money. Hmm. But that, that whole night racing thing was really big. Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay, so you go to the Philippines. Yeah. <laughs> are you are you able to ride? How long are you there? And uh, Two years. Okay. It was like purgatory or prison sentence. But um, it was like going back in time, right? I, motocross was happening in California. I was just in, getting in the groove of all of that. I was riding a uh, Yamaha 125 with an expansion chamber, which is a big deal. Um, and I go to the Philippines, and it's like third world country. And Where were you at in the Philippines? Um, we were south of Manila at Clark Air Force Base. Okay. Pretty popular base still. Um, but rural, I mean, was it kind of, well, the oh. base, the base is all to itself, right? They're all fenced off and gotcha. you're, you're living in a bubble hmm. on, on the base. Um, but it's South of Manila and they, no, there was no big city okay. at all. Um, but I mean, I went, my dad was all excited that there was motorcycle racing, right? And, and Down there? That I, yeah. And I wasn't going to be bummed by, uh, that, we're, that we're living in this country because there's motorcycle racing. So he takes me out to the races and I'm like, oh my God, these like Honda nineties from the early sixties with street tires on them and a paper plate duct taped on them, <laughs> you know, and 
and the, and this guy, he goes, I already talked to this guy and he's going to sponsor you. I'm like, okay. And I, you know, his, his name was Lou Webb and he had these jean jackets that had Lou Webb racing embroidered on him and, and you had to wear his jacket and you had to ride this piece of crap bike. And it was just such a step backwards. Uh, we were bummed. Like, holy. But it's, it was better than not yeah, riding. Yeah, you're still riding, yeah. And the, the track was, you know, smooth. It was like TT track. And they didn't water it. They poured oil, oil. 55-gallon barrels of oil from the, from the air base on the track, right? Which is, I'm surprised I don't have lung cancer. <laughs> That's what they, so all of the trails in Montana that went right alongside of the road. Yeah. That's what they would do to keep the dust down when I was a kid. Yeah. Just slick them with oil. Yep. Use more oil. So it, it was something to do. And it was a really, really different environment. We only had two tracks. There was one at the, the Air Force Base and one at the Navy Base at Subic. It was a couple hours away, I guess. Okay. And, uh, but they took it serious, right? Mm-hmm. When um, I, I'm just there as the, uh, this new American green kid, right? Going to ride for Lou Webb's racing on this piece of crap Honda. <laughs> and this other guy comes in and he's, you know, he's got his bike uh, hanging off the back bumper of his, his car. And he's got like 50 little Filipino kids just screaming and following his car. And I'm like, well, what the hell's the deal, right? I mean, he was like a rock star. Well, he was the factory Kawasaki rider, and he was Filipino guy, mm-hmm. um, and he had a fan club. They're all little kids, but I mean, they would cheer for him. They were just so excited that he was there. He was a big deal until mm-hmm. I beat him. As a kid, you beat him? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, turns out we're almost the same age. Oh, okay. But back then, I mean, he drove himself to the track. Yeah. And uh, so what? He wasn't on like a nice Kawasaki. It must have been just. No, there. it was brand new, you know, current model. Um, right. But I mean, it wasn't like a KX125 back then. It would have been, you know, like a trail bike that you took lights off. Yeah. And and some Filipino guy probably made an expansion chamber for him, you know, that didn't have any dimensions or whatever. And, um, and but I mean, he knew that that track and he knew how to ride and um, all that stuff. And it he became my rival huh. the whole time I was there. Um, were you guys friends or was it a... Oh, no, it was... Okay. No, uh, there's kind of a story there in that he, once I got off of the the, the rental Honda, uh, I told my dad, I, I can't ride that stuff. It's just, you know, it's not... I appreciate the offer, but it's just, it's not a very good bike. So in in 1970, Christmas, he, he flew over to Japan and, and bought us a SL100 okay. Honda. It was a new model for them, single cylinder, had a high front fender, so that meant it was a race bike. <laughs> so uh, we spent Christmas Day taking all the lights off of it. And um, so I started winning on that. And then my my brother and I were having to share it. And then I finally convinced him to get me uh, another Yamaha 125. But this time, get me one that doesn't have an electric start. And, yeah. You know, it's actually something we can make into a race bike. And, you know, you're familiar with GYT stuff now. Well, back then it was just called Git Kit. And so you would buy a Git Kit for your bike. You get a cylinder head and a pipe and maybe a different carb. And it made a big difference. I mean, they were considerably faster. 
And once I got that, I pretty much got the whooping on him. Yeah, I, I dominated. Um, and that's when the trouble started because he didn't like that very much. So he couldn't catch me, but he, he could lap my brother. And my brother was small at that point, you know, he's probably 12 years old and he would just knock him down blatantly. Mm -hmm. So he'd take him out. And it happened enough times that my dad finally said, you need to fix that. Well, my dad never told me <laughs> to yeah. get in a fight with anybody, right? But when your dad tells you, you need to handle that because he's hurting your little brother, well, puff your chest up and go handle it. So I went over there and punched him in the nose. Yeah? Yeah. And uh, he had an entourage. The only six-foot Filipino guy I ever saw took the strap on his helmet and clocked me in the side of the head. And my dad's 150 yards away, and at all the races they would have the uh, Philippine Constabulary, the PC, their police, right? He sees this melee breaking out, and he fires off a shot. Well, it coincides with me getting clocked in the head. Here's the shot, sees me fall on the ground. He's like, oh, crap. I just told my kid to go get the fight, and they killed him. So he comes over and finds out I'm still alive. I got a big goose egg on the side of my head, and they, they wanted to put me in jail. Yeah, so um, I had to go to court. Um, they were going to put me in jail, which was in the basement of this courthouse. And it looks like they had had the inmates dig it out. <laughs> it's just, just yes. a cave and there's a bunch of guys with brown underwear in there. <laughs> going, mm, fresh meat. Yeah, great. And uh, my mom went into hysterics. They finally got me to be able to, they, they took my passport. So I was on international hold, couldn't leave the country, but I, I could go home. So that was a win. What about the guy that hits you in the head with the helmet? Nothing happens to him? Well, but I'm an American, right? Mm. And I'm in their country. And um, so, yeah, I was on international hold till like a month before we left to come back home. Jeez. Yeah, they, they took that stuff pretty serious. So where do you, when you guys finally get out of there, uh, I imagine you were happy to probably get out. Well- so I get off international hold. We're, we're um, leaving. My, my dad gets orders. And you know, you never know where you're going to be um, sent. He gets orders for Edwards Air Force Base again. I'm like, cha-ching. <laughs> we're, we're going back to Motocross Central. I know everybody there. It's going to be great. And my dad said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you and your brother, and we're going to fly to um, Japan. And... Um, we're going to get a bunch of new parts for the 125 Yamaha, and then you get to pick a bike. So I picked a, a 1972 uh, Yamaha DT2 MX. It was the first real motocross bike they made. Uh, the other ones were always trail bikes with the Git Kit on. This was a full-on motocross bike. Okay. So we get over there, and um, yeah, I'm all yippy-skippy because we're going to Edwards. We're getting a new bike. It's going to life's good. And he goes, oh, by the way, um, our order's changed. We're going to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Oh, oh, boy. Grand Forks where? I didn't even know they had a North Dakota. Is it one North Dakota? And, uh, <laughs> where the hell is it on the map, right? Uh, so we 
we ended up getting shipped to North Dakota, which if you've ever been there is as flat as pancake. Yeah. Flat as a pancake and almost as almost less motocross racing than the Philippines had. I mean, it was, yeah, there's not a lot out there. Yeah. So even still pretty flat, but he, he wanted to retire soon. He was at that stage in his career and he wanted to make the transition from a, a state that was close to Wisconsin. So he was happy about it. Is that where he's from or? Yeah. My, my folks were both from Wisconsin. Okay. And so he, they wanted to retire there. He, he took this, this, it was a um, strategic air command base. Um, he took that job just to do, make that transition easier, but man, did it suck for hmm. motorcycling. How long were you there? A year. So not much riding? Oh, well, I mean, I rode. You as, got the bike. That I rode as, yeah. And, and I, we would go to Minnesota and we'd go, there were a, a couple of tracks in, um, in North Dakota, like Bismarck and some other places that, that we would go ride. But it, it was a long ways from Edwards Air Force Base and, and yeah. autocross, you know, as we knew it. Yeah. So after a year, then where? Uh, then we retired to, um. Wisconsin. Okay. And, you know, when you get into that part of the country and Millville was like our home track and I mean, there was a lot of activity down there and the guys were good. This would be 73, 74. Yep. We lived there in 73. Okay. Yeah. And that part was really good. And and I raced that DT2 quite a bit Um, and then moved to the 125 class the next year. Okay. Made the mistake of buying a Suzuki. (laughs) Because in 1974, if you wrote if you wrote anything other than Honda, you're gonna get. When was the Elsinore launched? 75? 74. 74. Okay. Yeah. It it was, and it really was like far and away. Yeah. Yeah. Except they were all jetted poorly, hmm. so they loaded up all the time. So you'd have some guy that was just smoking everybody, and the, he'd load it up in a corner. And then he'd be sitting there, oh, 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 oh. oh, even while you were riding, it would load up? Oh, absolutely. Oh. Yeah. And Did they not have, a, you couldn't jet them? Or I mean, like. Well, I, I, everybody just rode them the way they came out of the box, right? And um, and they were jetted really poorly. So you'd have to turn the fuel off, hold the throttle wide open, and just wait for it to cycle through enough gas. Jeez. And, and I mean, this was a really common sight in 1974. And the bikes were so good, people were putting up with it. And then somebody said, hey, you can grab the overflow tube and suck on it and it'll clean it out immediately. And it did. But then, you know, you had all these guys parked on the side of the sucking on their own <laughs> giving oral sex to the very Elsinore. <laughs> I was like, yeah, my Suzuki's looking pretty good right now. <laughs> yeah. You might be on a better bike, but I don't look so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Suzuki handled good. But it, why wouldn't they jet them? Were, were jets not available? I don't understand why they wouldn't just put a smaller range in it. I don't think anybody, well, it was a brand new model. Yeah. Nobody really had any experience with it. I mean, nobody bought a bike that came out of the box that didn't run right. So it took a while yeah, for it's, people to figure it out. You know, it's a lot like the, the fuel injected two strokes right now. Uh, they're terrible. They're terrible. Anyone that has ridden one goes, yeah, it sucks. It's uh, totally flat. It's uh, boring to ride. Uh, a two-stroke. Yeah. Okay, not the four-stroke. Not the four-stroke. The right. two-stroke fuel-injected bikes. Um, I have ridden one. It's it's having the same thing where people don't know what to do. They're like, and and just a don't few people. Don't on the vent tube. I'll tell them. I'll tell them to try that. 
Yeah, I've heard if you suck really hard on the muffler, it helps. I don't know. Give it a try. Uh, anyway, it's just funny as new technology comes out and people are like, oh, you know, that's where we're at with the fuel injection on the two strokes right now. Well, we were like that with suspension early on, right? Mm. I mean, you bought a Yamaha Monoshock, you didn't know anything about SAG. Right. Other than that's what yeah. happens when you sit on it. Yeah. Sag. But, but you didn't, you didn't know how to set things up. You didn't know how to dial in, um, damping. You didn't know any of that. All right. And so we just rode the shit out of the way it came. Mm. Hmm. That's funny. So, um, all right, you're racing, you're racing a couple of years there. Then what? You guys, did you guys beat it back to California, obviously. So what was the. Well, I was in Wisconsin, um, and I did my senior year of high school there. And so you'd been in California, Philippines, North Dakota, Wisconsin, all while you're in like junior high and high school. Yeah. I, I went to four different uh, high schools. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, the, the last year I had had enough credits that I own when I got into the second half of my senior year, I only had one class. Yeah. And, uh, so I was working, I had a girlfriend and I had told her I would marry her when we got out of high school mm. and no, she wasn't pregnant. <laughs> I just told her I would, and I do what I say I'm going to do. So <laughs> two weeks out of high school, I married her. And loaded all my crap in a trailer and headed west. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Is that your wife today? No. Oh, okay. I was like, that's a crazy story. Yeah. Um, no, it's not. So in hindsight, probably should have held off on that or what? Well, I mean, you're a kid at 18. Yeah, yeah I know. I, but, I, you know, honor was always a big thing yeah. for me. And I was like, man, if I told her I was going to marry her, I got to do that. Yeah. I don't really like her, but yeah, I told her I would. <laughs> no, she, <laughs> she was a good person, but we were kids. And it, yeah. it it was a it was a dumb thing to do, but um, you're allowed to do dumb stuff yeah. when you're a kid. Can't learn from your mistakes till you make them. Yeah, right. So, uh, but that that year that I rode that Suzuki, I only only rode half the year, like a, up to the beginning of June. And and races in in the snow belt don't even start until May, late March, early mm. April, right? So I only raced um, up to June. And um, I still finished second in the 125 expert class for that AMA district. Hmm. Um, and and there were some good guys back then. I mean, um, later on, I was racing with um, Scott Wallenberg and and uh, and that whole crew of people from Illinois. And um, but there were, you know, you remember Danica Kirkpatrick? Um, yeah. Right? Yep. Her dad raced with us. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, there was a bunch of factory Can Am guys, and uh, it was it was a good series. Big crowd back in that pocket. There's like a big pocket of I think still to this day there's a good uh, motocross crew in there. Well, yeah, you got Michigan's really strong, yeah. and yeah, well, uh, Jace is from Illinois, I think, isn't he? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not exactly sure what town, but he is Illinois boy. Yep. Um. Okay, so how did you get back to, you loaded up out of high school and just drove out here, and, and you were like, I'm going back to Lancaster, or where? where? Well, I was, uh, my sister lived in uh, Canoga Park. Okay. So I stayed in, in her garage till I figured shit out. And um, Did you I, get married? Oh, yeah. Okay. Two weeks out of high school. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Velvet bow tie and the whole thing, right? Yeah. All right. Try and hide those pictures. Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I was just 
bound and determined that I was going to find a job in the industry and I was going to race motocross. Okay. And so I did. I got got out here, rode the Suzuki a little bit and was like, man, the, I mean, the, the competition in California is way tougher than Wisconsin. So I got rid of the Suzuki. And I bought a brand new um, 360 Bull Taco in the box. Okay. And then built it myself and it was one of those bikes where you have to put 20 hours of work in it before you ever put in. 74? 74. Yeah. Really good bike. And it was competitive, huh? Oh, it, I mean, I bought it at the end of, of the uh, model year. So the 75s had come out, but the only difference was, that, you know, they yeah. moved the shocks up a little bit. But even versus the Elsinore? Or was that just a 125 at that point? Uh, well, Elsinore, they had a 125 and a 250, but I would... To me, 500 class was- That was the man's class. That was where men raced, yeah. right? Yeah. So I bought a 360 Bull Taco, and, and I had gone to Indian Dunes and some other places and watched what worked. And, and uh, you know, there was Kenny Zart and Ron Haas and a whole bunch of guys, Joe Root, that all raced Bull Taco, and they hooked up good on the hard uh, ground. So I, I bought one of those. Hmm. And- um, it was a great bike, except it had just little bizarre things that would break on it. I, I've never had a, a tire delaminate. Have you? <laughs> no. Yeah. I had a, a Pirelli delaminate. The frame broke. I mean, there was just a lot of freak things. The ignition went out. The rod went out. I mean, it was, but man, it, it was so light. It was like 212 pounds for a yeah. open bike. Yeah, that's crazy. And I got a job working at Kendick Engineering. That made um, pipes and carburetors and stuff for go karts. Oh, but you know they were also kind of a motorcycle shop. And um, it was first job I interviewed for. They offered me a, a job, and I was on it. So um, they sold this thing called a pumper carb, and it it was you know the same theory as a lot of the carbs uh, are today, where they're all externally adjustable. And so this thing was a forty millimeter carb I put on my 360 bull taco talk about wake it up and you could just dial the jetting mm. to make it perfect mm. so it that was a a nice add-on mm. and and I worked there there was um uh, also a company called two Bart that was part of that whole Kendick engineering thing were you what class were you racing at the time then 500 intermediate okay when I first moved out there yeah okay and um you know I I was a Top third of the okay class, I would say. Competitive, but not crushing everything. Oh, I wasn't. No, I wasn't winning. Um, but I, because I had all these freak things with the, with the Bull Taco, you know, I had a lot of DNFs and uh, we were at um, Indian Dunes one day and, and Kenny Zart owned Indian Dunes and he was a pro. He was the, was he one of the big main guys back at the time okay owned okay indian dudes like who else who would have been his competitors locally in southern california at that time yeah i mean um billy payne was was a mako guy there was ron haas was another bull taco guy joe root there there not no relation to billy payne that from the 90s was there a billy payne yeah wrote for mitch oh that was his son is that his son okay that's why i was wondering okay i forgot that um i believe that to be the the case so the, there was a kind of a hotbed there, but you know how one guy just becomes, I can't remember, was it Val Tamietti that was like the king of Saddleback? There was always somebody that was like- Yeah, a local guy. And and Kenny Zark owned 
Indian dunes. Okay. So I had some sort of uh, problem with my my Boltaco, and and they ran the intermediate uh, gate second to the the pro gate, and whatever it was that was a problem, I got it fixed on the side of the track, and Kenny Zark came by. So I just fell in behind him and was trying to see what he was doing, and I was keeping pace. And the announcer was like, who the hell is this guy, right? He's an intermediate, and he's and I hung with him till the end of the moto. Hmm. And didn't mean anything to anybody but me, but I was like, oh, I can go that fast. I just did. And I did it all because I was following him. Yeah. But it it gave me that one missing part, which was confidence. Mm-hmm. So, I and it's funny. I have a a question in here. Where I was say, was there a moment that kind of where your career bumped up? You know, yeah. uh, I a lot of people. This is what happened with me. It is kind of when I hit puberty. For me, that's when it happened. I was always like I was technically okay, but I didn't have any of that. I needed more testosterone, right? And that's, Your my, balls dropped. My balls were tucked up a bit too much. <laughs> and when they did, boy, I was—I went from being mid-pack at amateur nationals to I'm competing for wins, just like that. Yeah. Um, and so I have a friend whose kid's going through that right now. And I'm like, easy goes, yeah, he just won't. Gosh, he just doesn't want it. And I said, well, I said, He'll wait till he starts growing a couple of hairs under his armpit. I said, it'll probably change on you. So, but there's always—it seems like there's always something, right? I asked Roger DeCoster that question once because having been around a long time you see guys who are just also rants and then the next season all of a sudden they're dominant like how does that happen i mean especially you know when i was in the snow belt Hmm. you're not riding in the winter time and the guy comes out and he's great and roger's answer was very telling he said it wasn't one thing it's a bunch of things right it's family support it's fitness it's the bike it's a bunch of things Mm -hmm. um but for me, hanging with Zart that day was... It was a big moment. Yep, it was. Um, so tell me about your first pro race. When did you turn pro? And did that, that obviously had to have had an impact on your decision. You're like, I just hung with the pro who beats everybody. Yeah. Um, well, right around that same time, um, my brother and the, the owner of the local motor, motorcycle shop in uh, Wisconsin came out to visit. And we went, we all went to the USGP hmm. and, um, Glenn Hell or, uh, Carlsbad at the time. Carlsbad. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so we, we all went to the USGP and at the end of the day, he said, Hey, I want to offer you a job. Well, I just moved to California a year ago. Right. And he goes, I, I want to offer you a job doing what? And he said, I want you to manage my shop. And he was a Mako dealer. You know, I mean, a Mako dealer back then might have a bike on the floor. <laughs> mm. Not a lot to manage. And, yeah. And and they were also a snowmobile dealer and okay. sold Gemini mini bikes and a bunch, bunch of stuff. And I was like, I mean, I just got out here. I'm just getting my feet wet. So I went back. Um, he let me ride his bike at, at a local race. And, and you know how brand new bikes work. And they're just amazing. Everything's tight. Everything works. I just smoked everybody. And he's like, you could be the dude. I'll give you a bike, you know, every year. And it just said all the right things. It was that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough about business to say, Hey, let me look at your balance sheet and see how you're doing. Hmm. Should have. But I, um, I went back to Wisconsin 
again and um, ran the Mako shop, raced pro from then on out. And there there were a, a bunch of pro races back then. So you wrote expert. And then if there was a, a, a place that was offering money, you went and, and raced those races too. Mm-hmm. And how are you doing? Uh, good. I was, you know, always in the, in the top five group and won and, you know, made a little bit of money. But I mean, pro, pro racing back then, you, you did squat. Yeah. It was tough to make bucks. So, uh, sounds like this dealership went tits up. I mean, what, how long did that take? Yeah. About a year. Okay. About a year. Yeah. I mean, I knew it'd be in there the first few months and going, where's the customers, mm-hmm. right? You know, how's this guy keep this deal going? He, I mean, my paycheck was cashing, but not much else. Mm-hmm. But in that, in that time period, I did a lot of racing. I got to know the, um, they could distribute pretty well and they knew me. And so when it, when that, all went bust. Um, I got a job in construction and that, but I also got bikes from the distributor. Oh, okay. And, and my rival was Scott Wallenberg. He, right? he was riding for the distributor too. Okay. And it was always, you know, we're going to give the best parts to the best rider. So you got to beat him. And I threw myself on the ground more than a couple times <laughs> trying to beat Scott. I, I beat him a few times, but I think he beat me more. Yeah. That's funny. Um, you, how'd you get back out to California? Cause you came back here, right? Again. Yeah. After it was back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. And the, and the, the, uh, 18 year old getting married thing didn't work out. So, so when you were back there, that's when yeah, that ended. I, okay. I, I was married about four years. Yeah. And, and that started to disintegrate and it, it just, you know, those places where you're, uh, stuck, in, you know, from Montana, I mean, you're stuck inside all winter long. It's just not good for your head. It's just, it's, it's, it's not good for a relationship. Well, it's not good for anything. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we weren't going out to bars and doing all that stuff that was kind of popular in Wisconsin. And it just was like, a, yeah, this isn't working. So she, she went her own way and I, I loaded up and came to California. Okay. At that time, that's when you had I'm out. Yep. And then did you continue to do construction out here? Well, later on. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. tell me what happened when you got back out here. Well, that's when I, I, I sold the Makos cause they were always breaking and I bought a 78 Yamaha. Okay. It was Ooh, that was a good bike, right? Yeah. They yeah. worked. Uh, like I said, we didn't know anything about suspension or sag or any of that stuff, but just the bike worked and the clutch worked and the, mm. the ignition and the trans and all the things that were a problem with the Mako weren't a problem with the Yamaha. Mm. Um, so yeah. And, and so I rode 500 pro on that, um, did pretty good. And um, that's, um, I was, hot tubs were a big deal back then. So I got a job working with, with a guy that was installing hot tubs and decks and arbors and all that stuff. And I already had construction, construction, uh, experience. So it's like, sure, I'll help you do that. And that kind of blew up. And pretty soon I was, you know, his manager and running crews and we were, we were busy. Um, but I said, Hey, I, I'm going to go race this mammoth thing that I've heard about forever. So I'm taking off uh, two weeks or whatever it was in June. I'm going to go up a week early, get acclimated, ride, you know, all that stuff. And so I did, and I was riding 500 pro. Um, and it was 
pro practice day. I think it was Friday or whatever. And there was a big uh, right-hand sweeper there, a big tall berm, and, and the pro guys were going around it wide open, and I wasn't. And I was like, unless I figure that out, I'm probably not going to figure out anything else. Is it a section that's still on the track? I mean, it's I, pretty similar. I haven't, um, okay. I haven't ridden there in a bunch of years. Um, I think it is. But anyway, uh, I I just kept practicing it, you know, kind of getting off the track, coming back into it. And, and then, it, well, you know how it is. Once you get it right, you're like, that's the feeling, right? <laughs> you got to go do it again. So I went and did it again a couple more times. And then the t- top of the berm broke off. Mm. And I went from turning to going straight into uh, a bunch of rocks, big rocks. Hmm. Cartwheeled me, and I landed flat on my back on top of a big granite boulder. Ugh. And that's when I had my near-death experience. Okay. I, I felt I was unconscious. But I, but whatever, I had a consciousness inside of me, and I could just feel it pulling away. Really? Oh, I mean, it was... It was a very strange um, thing to try and describe, but I was unconscious to the world, but I was ultra conscious of what was going on with me, and my life force was just leaving my body. And mm. it, I didn't have that experience where you look back and you see your body. I just knew I was leaving, mm. and I fought really hard. You know, I was having this this telepathic argument in my head. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I want to go. Wow. And, and I eventually came back and, and I started to regain consciousness, but I was, I was so far off the track. Nobody knew I was out there. Oh. And so I laid on this rock for a long time and nobody was coming to help me. I mean, my bike had to have been laying flat or whatever where it couldn't be seen. So I literally had to roll over and then drag myself out onto the track. And there were still bikes going by. So somebody would see that I'm yeah. injured. Yeah. And then they got a four-wheel drive ambulance out there and took me to the hospital. Huh. What was broken or hurt? I mean, outside of concussion, obviously. Yeah. I I mean, I, I thought I broke my my right femur. Um, obviously, concussion... There was a bunch of other stuff that was that was beat up. They they took me to the hospital in in Mammoth, and they were getting ready to take me into with a uh, whatever room. And my brother says, "Hey, do you have insurance?" No. He goes, "Do you know what this cost?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I got off the gurney." <laughs> Start hobbling out, right? <laughs> and they're like, no, you can't leave. Like, I have to leave. I can't afford this. So I I made a commitment that if I could walk come Sunday, pro day, I was going to race. And it wasn't pretty, but I was walking. And um, first moto, gate drop, I got hole shot. Oh, no. Worst thing, worst case scenario, worst thing to do, right? I'm like, I got Rex Staten and a whole bunch of really good pros behind me. And then luck happened. God tapped me on the shoulder, said, hey, I'm going to help you out. I hit a rock and just exploded the the front tire. I was like, 
I got a flat. Oh, God. Thank God. <laughs> it wobbled off the track. I had no business being out there. But, um, yeah, that was a that was the end of my pro career. I was like, well, no, no, actually, that, that was the second closest that I came to the uh, end of my pro career. Later, we were doing a um, Golden State race, and, and Rex lapped me. And I was like, if I'm getting lapped, I, I don't care what class I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. And I sold the bike two days. And that was it? Yep, six-year break. So, uh, six really, six years of no riding. I didn't own a bike. Yeah, after all that time. Man. So, what did you do during that six years? I started working on building my own construction company. Okay. And um, we did remodels. We did a bunch of different stuff. And then the the energy crisis hit, if you remember, in the early 80s. And um, Pacific Gas and Electric Company was looking for ways to mitigate people's bills and, you know, save energy and all that stuff. And and I was just kind of there at the beginning of that. So uh, I got my foot in the door and we, we started doing um, insulation and weather stripping and, and, and it turned into this thing called weatherization. Um, and it turned into a, a big business for me. We were doing $6 million a year and mm-hmm. I had offices from Bakersfield to San Francisco. And all I did was drive from this office to that office. She is pissing on fires every day for years. Um, but it was such good money and there was so much business that mm-hmm. I just kept building. So the, the, the home builders, we were, I mean, we were doing business with the home builders to install this stuff when they build them or we were retrofit, retrofit okay. retrofitting homes. You know, you had a lot of low income people who are on fixed income and then the bill, the energy bills are going up and they're, they, they had to help those folks in some way. So, okay. so it was up. government subsidized to. Well, it was, it was mandated by the government, but it, it Pacific Gas and Electric had to pay for it. Oh, okay. Because, you know, they would go in and want rate hikes and then the, the public utility commission would say, well, what are you doing for fixed income people? Unless you help them, we're not giving you this. Hmm. So it was an interesting thing, but it it did have government involved in it. You know, I met a lot of uh, California government folks through that. Yeah, like Willie Brown, Kamala's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, interesting. Um, okay, so six years of that, and and why did you get out of that? Um, or like what brought about the end of that? If that was doing so well, did you sell it? Nope. I wasn't smart enough back then. Hmm. Um, I had kids, you know, I had two boys and I was like, after, after the second one was born, they were only 18 months apart. Um, you know, my, my first son, I, you know, your file drawer in your desk, I, I took all my files out and I made that his crib. Because I was working six days a week, yeah. right? And he learned to walk at the office. He thought the secretaries were his mother hence. <laughs> and then so I got number two that comes along. I'm like, yeah, this isn't the life that I wanted for my kids. Yeah. I got to figure something out. And just prior to um, them coming into the world, 
I got the itch to have a bike again. And I went through the, the Fresno Bee newspaper in the classifieds back when we had newspapers. And I found a Yamaha trials bike. I was like, man, I always wanted a trials bike. I bought it for three, 400 bucks and restored it. I mean, it was a rattle can resto, <laughs> you know, back then you just took all the body work off and freshened up the motor. And, and I was like, that was fun. So then I put an ad in the paper that said, wanted any old dirt bikes in a year. I had a hundred. Oh, geez. But it was all, all sorts of stuff, right? I mean, they were bulldog, bull taco matadors and all, it wasn't all motocross stuff. Yeah. But it was very clear there was a business yeah. there. And then um, the year that my first son was born, I had heard about this Dick Man rally up in Brentwood, California, outside of Sacramento. And uh, I drove up there. And I was looking at the... Looking at the bikes going, this is all the shit I used to ride, right? And I had a connection to it. I knew how to work on it. It was just like the light bulb went off. Hmm. What year would this have been? 88. 88. And so you're looking at late 60s, 70s model stuff. Yeah. It's funny how, you know, if you go back 15 years now, what you're looking at, right? Yeah. But yeah, you know, it was, it was that era of stuff. Um, So... I had already recognized that there was kind of a movement and it was the kind of movement that, that mountain biking had, you know, it started up in Tiburon area of, uh, of both San Francisco and it just exploded because people were, were digging it. And Mm -hmm. this whole vintage motorcycle thing, it was, it was catching fire in the same way. So I started buying bikes on through the newspaper and uh, fixing them up every once in a while. And the first one I got done, I put it in Cycle News when we had Cycle News, and I sold it for six hundred bucks restored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought I was cutting a fat hog. <laughs> so what did you have into it total? I mean, we, well, I don't, you know, I it was all fiberglass, right? So I had all the fiberglass painted, and you know, countless. That didn't count any of my labor. It was just something I was doing because it was fun. Yeah. But I sold it the first day I put it in the paper. So that was another um, affirmation that there's a market out here. Yeah. So when when number two son came along and I made the, the commitment to make a change in my life, it was pretty clear what my avenue would be because it was my only other avenue. Mm-hmm. I didn't really want to do construction anymore. I did it because I knew how to, not right. because I loved it. Right. And I thought, well, here's a, here's a chance, you know, that old saying about if you do what you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm qualified for this job. So I just started building it, building the brand. And I mean, I was, I was buying bikes and fixing them up and just trying to get them out on the track to build customer base. Yeah. And then I would get famous people, you know, like Malcolm Smith or whoever that was a name guy and say, hey, I'll look, I'll restore your bike for you for the cost of parts and paint. I'll do all the labor for free. Well, why wouldn't they, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then I, I part of it was that I get to use your name advertising my company. And so I did a whole bunch of those and started to build a brand. And that was Vintage Iron. Yep. Yeah. And, and then I I started bidding my, my construction stuff with PG&E 
at a at a level that if I if I had to do it, I was going to make a lot of money. Hmm. And if if they said you know we're going to go with the next lowest bidder, that my my path is chosen, and my path was chosen. <laughs> so, I, and then you know the the whole construction thing. I just never wanted to be an average guy at anything, and and like. All my guys were in uniforms. All my trucks were painted. All you know, we just had a really high level, and it cost a certain amount of money to to maintain all that. And if I had to, you know, drop my pants and drop the price, I just I didn't want to be you more of it that way. Yeah, yeah. But you probably could have sold that. That was there's certainly value in wasn't enough back then. I just wanted out, mm. you know, and wanted to move to Southern California because if I was going to do vintage iron, that was the place to be. Mm-hmm. You know, not the mid part of the state. So eighty nine, you moved down. No, it's actually because I I started it there. I I stayed in uh, Fresno for a period of time. I moved to Yorba Linda in ninety eight. Oh, okay, and so you know, it took a while to unwind everything, and I had sixty employees mm. and offices and leases and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it takes a while. But um, I moved down in, in 98, and then we did the um, Iron Men of Motocross um, banquet, and then the first Vintage World Championship in 98 at Glen Helen. Okay. And the Iron Men of Motocross thing, we invited guys from all over the world and paid them to show up at Auburg and all these famous guys from the 70s mm-hmm. and, and had this big uh, banquet at, uh, in San Bernardino at this hotel. And that I kind of, you know, put us on the map again too. Okay. And so take me through the genesis of Vintage Iron. Like how did that grow over the next several years? Well, I mean, when, when we started, you know, uh, I was a construction guy with a lot of money and I was just looking around to do something that I thought would help guys. And, and they were, they all had like goofy fenders, modern bike fenders on old bikes mm-hmm. and they looked dorky right and Husqvarna's had a very unusual uh, mounting system it it bolted horizontal through the fender so you had to have a a fender that was designed that way in order to bolt it on Mm. and I thought well that's that's what I should make is husky fenders because those guys can't find anything that even works for them so I did and I remember you know you have to have molds made and do minimums and all that stuff right and so I lay them out on a probably a tarp at a race, $25 a piece. You know how it was received? Hmm. Are you kidding me? You're an asshole. Why would you try and rape somebody for $25 for a plastic fit? (laughs) The same vendors now are a hundred. But nobody, and it's like, you don't have to buy them. Yeah. And, uh, but that, that's what they cost. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, I was building a market where there wasn't a market and they, we, we finally got people to come around it. You know, they didn't have handlebars that were the right height. So I found a place in San Jose that used to make stuff for motocross Fox when they were, when they made parts, they made all our handlebars and we had like CZ bend and a Husky bend and a this bend. And, and, you know, you, again, you got to buy a bunch of them. Yeah, you got to stock them. You got to you know. so it turned into a, a a pretty substantial business. And then you look at what 
what you go through to restore a bike, you know, you need suspension, you need engine parts. So yeah. we just started offering all that. And we, you know, we were kind of the general motors of vintage motorcycles for a mm. while. I didn't know you got into manufacturing parts too. That's crazy. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. So we had, had a bunch of stuff going on. So you were restoring and, and reselling bikes then manufacturing parts to sell for people that were also doing this on their own or right. or whatever. Okay. And, then, and then I went to international distributors also. So mm -hmm. we had like one in Holland, one in Australia, one in Japan. We had distributors all over the world that were selling our product. Mm -hmm. um, so that part was, was pretty cool too. I wasn't making the money I was making in construction, but I was home every day too. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to be at, you know, all the soccer practices, yeah. even though they made me gag. And, you know, I remember being at a soccer practice one day and going, yeah, I played football when I was a kid. Soccer was for kids that didn't want to get tackled. And and the woman goes, um, my husband went to college playing soccer. <laughs> Looked at him and went, yeah, that, that fits. Sounds about <laughs> right. That's funny. Um, so what was kind of the next thing for you? Were you racing at all during this time? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you got back into riding. And well, I, but mostly vintage? Yeah. I was just doing the vintage stuff because, you know, if you look at the time period when I quit, which was 80, 81, 80, I think it was, um, to 86, the tracks and the bikes changed a ton. Yeah. Right. Double jumps were like a brand new concept um, in 80. They weren't, it wasn't that popular on, on motocross tracks. Right. Supercross maybe, but not on motocross tracks. But by 86, there was doubles and triples in every track. Hmm. And I was like, how do you even do that? How do you gauge how, how fast they hit it? Right. I was a fish out of water. So the vintage thing um, was much more attractive to me. I feel like we're, we're going, we've gone through another little period where the tracks have evolved a lot in the last, say, decade or so. Because I go out now and even the vet tracks, I'm like, well, that's a pretty big jump for a vet track, you know? Um, but okay, you know, like I won't name any particular tracks, but there's some spots where you're just like, yeah, I, I get it. I wouldn't want to do this if I wasn't riding regularly and really comfortable. Right. And I think that's why you're seeing dual sport yep. riding becoming so much more popular and off-road and enduro stuff. All of those guys that were making up the seven, uh, heats of 125 novice, yep. they they're all in their fifties and they're like, I'm not jumping doubles. So what, what else you got for me? You know? Right. And if you can, if you can make the stuff safe, that's one thing. If you make it do or die, that's a whole different deal. And I, uh, you know, it's just not. I don't care how old you are. There, I was going to tell you a funny story later, but I, I took a motocross school with um, Tony De Stefano, right? Tony D's motocross schools, because a buddy of mine wanted to go, and he didn't want to go alone, and um, he left the jumping part till the end of the school. He goes, okay, and now we're going to go over here and we're going to do um, doubles. Well, it wasn't doubles. It was three doubles in a row. So you really had to have your timing down. And uh, I, I know Tony a little bit. He goes, hey, Rick, why don't you show everybody how it's done? I'm like, nope, not doing it. He goes, how come? I said, I'll watch. And, and I can't remember the, the guy's name, but he wrote for Mitch when he was a Husky guy, right? Okay. S Mick something or another. Mick, not McDougal. No, no. Okay. But 
apparently he was a, a husky guy for Mitch back in the day. And he's like, hey, I'll do it. And he came around and hit the first double, overjumped it, smacked into the face of what would be the third jump, broke his collarbone. And I said, that's exactly why I didn't want to do it. Hmm. But I'll do it now. <laughs> I watched him screw up. Well, I and then I did, wasn't taking any glee and him crashing, but I had an idea of how fast he yeah. hit. And I mean, if you're going to have that kind of stuff in tracks, in my opinion, you should start guys off in, in terms of learning, saying, okay, this is a 20-foot dump. This is how much speed you need to clear a 20-foot. Huh. And then you're going to do... There just shouldn't be doubles on a vet track. It should be tabletops or, or round step-ups with long tails. So you can see the landing... And if you come up short, it's it's a long landing to like, so that you don't get spit over the bars and the front wheel yeah, drops. Or graduated yeah, yeah. Uh, down lamps. There's safe ways to do it. And, and I feel like that's a second or third consideration for these track builders. You well, know? most of the time, track builders aren't riders. Or they're, or they're young riders. That's what I found. Yeah. Right there, guys are going, oh, no, this, it's not that hard or it's fine. And it's like, well, hold on. Literally, you're talking about 50 and 60-year-old guys here who, who have to work on Monday. Yep. They don't want to jump this shit. They're, they just want to, you know, let's just make a fun course for them to have some fun on. I don't know. It, it frustrates me to no end. Yeah. I've, I see a lot of times the, the guy running the tractor isn't a rider. And, and that's not a... I mean, they try hard, but they just don't have a concept of what it's going to be like when you're on a bike. Right. Mm. Uh, so what was next for you then? You mean after I got the vintage iron thing rolling? Yeah, vintage iron rolling. You're, well, I'm looking for ways to expand the market. Okay. Because it was pretty small at that point. And um, there was talk about this group in New York called Arma, and they wanted to um, they wanted to bring the motocross community, vintage community into the fold and have a, a, an organization like an AMA, right? I wasn't a part of any of those negotiations or whatever, but it happened. And so then everything that we were doing became an ARMA event. Um, and then they wanted to start a national series of, for motocross. And I became the sponsor. And part of, you know, and I gave them a bunch of money, but I also went on the road. I do, would do about 40,000 miles a year traveling to all these different places. And people, you know, for the most part, had never had a vintage race before. So we'd have to set up the track and mm. give them the class layouts and help them with all the stuff that it took to get established and then find a guy that might be able to replicate that in that area. So you got a regional guy that's going to help and, and it's that Johnny Appleseed concept. Mm. Yeah. So I did that for a bunch of years. Mm. And expanded vintage racing pretty significantly over that. Yeah. Time. I mean, it put, it put that, on the map for, you know, it's made it a, a mainstream part of the sport. Yeah. Yeah. I think now more than ever, you know, baby boomers being kind of the age that they are, that was our, that was the group that was so prominent in the eighties, huh? Of riders. Yeah. I, and I think if you do it right, it just continues on. It's just it, the whole vintage thing's driven by nostalgia, right? Cars, motorcycles, airplanes, what doesn't matter what it is. You get to a point where you start remembering things fondly from your youth mm -hmm. you either had it or you wanted it and never got it mm -hmm. so those two things and vintage racing's that yeah and you're not going to go ride like you were when you were 16 but you could maybe ride the bike you did when you were 16 
Yeah. Uh, and, and that part's, that part's really fun. So, and then you add the mechanical aspect of restoring the bikes and, and, and a modern bike doesn't really need you that much, right? <laughs> you can wash it, put gas in it. It doesn't really need you. Yeah. A vintage bike needs you. You got to be in there interacting with it. And, um, I, I don't know if you know or remember Fred Fox from Parts Unlimited. Not Fred. Well, well, Fred was the founder of of uh, Parts Unlimited, and he looked really hard at buying vintage iron at one point. Hmm. And I was back there several trips trying to put all that together, and that was the one thing he liked about my company the most. He goes, "You're going to put guys back in the garage, and when they're in the garage." They're connecting with that that bike, and they're gonna they're gonna buy parts. They're gonna be involved, right? More than just you know, you take your modern bike and push it back in the garage. Yeah, it'll be there when you go again. Yeah, wash it, filter, throw some gas in it, and right. But but he he saw the <clears throat> the the potential in that creating revenue. Mm. So um, it didn't ultimately happen because one of the guys that was really driving the whole purchase got killed in the snowmobile accident mm-hmm. um tragically but anyway i i think that's a big part of the the desire that people have with um vintage bikes i mean i i have a 1966 el camino and i work on it and i don't work on my 2023 chevy truck right yeah I, but I love working on the El Camino, yeah, and driving it. Yeah, it's definitely different. Well, and again, it comes back to nostalgia. I I remember I have great memories of my dad showing me how to change a top end on an RM80. Um, just those two stroke things, right? Uh, for me, that's my right. That's my vintage era. So now I'm this '86. That's within four years of that window, right? right. Like, um, so I get it. I totally get it, and I, I think it's great. Um, well, one of the other things that, that's cool about vintage racing is that you can, you can go into time periods or like little time capsules, right? Yeah. You can go to time periods you were never a part of. Yeah. Like I, I have a Rickman Matisse that was from the mid sixties. I wasn't riding dirt bikes then, but man, when you ride it, you feel like you're in the sixties. Yeah. Because those guys, you know, they were dealing with short travel and big, heavy engines and, and and it's a whole different mindset, mm-hmm. um, and you get to live it because you're riding it. Yeah, you also sort of put yourself into that era too. Um, you know, I'm already looking at this. I keep using my build that I'm working on just because I relate to it. But I was like, okay, Larocco was riding that bike, and uh, Burnworth. You know, like I'm looking at the guys who raced that year, and like just thinking about cool photos I had seen or videos of them, and so. That I'll be thinking about that when I ride it for the first time, you know. And hopefully you'll be geared up. With... Well, yeah, it's <laughs> kind of harder to find some of that gear, but I know uh, Burner does have some of his open face helmets. I might have to, yeah, have to hit him up. It's fun to to do that to yeah. wear the gear of the day. Yeah, it it kind of completes the whole thing. Well, I hope I can and launch this thing and uh, and and come out to one of your races to yeah actually compete on it. Um. So you're doing the replica replica parts and restorations. I mean, is vintage iron at that point doing pretty well? I mean, you yeah, guys are I'm, yeah. I'm feeding my kids with it. It's awesome. Living the dream, man. You you literally went out and built something around something you love. Yeah, I I, I don't know if it was a dream, but <laughs> well, it was 
you know, I've been an entrepreneur most of my my life, and you, you just you, you eat what you kill. Mm. So I've got that kind of ethic about me that I, I got to hustle, yeah. you know, make stuff happen, and it expands as you have a family, and then a mortgage, and all the rest of the stuff. So you just got to hustle. You yeah. know that. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people will say oh, I'm not ready for kids. I say, well. Sometimes it's the best thing you can do to get your ass in gear. Yeah. Because when you've got little ones now, it changes your priorities and perspective and what right. um, you realize your responsibility is now. It's not just, you know, you on the couch. Now it's okay. I got to feed this thing. What the hell am I going to do? I better have a plan, you know. It'll it'll change your work ethic right there. You know, I just uh, heard a, a thing on the news yesterday about um, bed rotting. And it's the the new trend for Gen Zers that they just stay in bed for days on end, and and, it, and it's cool. It's kind of a hipster thing to do, apparently. Wow, yeah, bed riding, bed riding sounds fun. Yeah, I think I'll go riding instead. <laughs> um, so how how involved are you then with with Arma at this point uh, in the storyline here? Well, I mean, you're out running around right. promoting all the stuff. Are you and Dick Man butting heads over the ideology at this point? That that came. Okay. Initially, I was just following his lead. You know, I mean, he's famous writer guy, and um, and don't I I'm, I'll never take anything away from what he accomplished on a motorcycle, um, and and he was responsible for kind of kickstarting the the vintage thing. So he gets big props for that. But to pigeonhole it that small. You know, and trying to keep it just to what he saw as mm. applicable vintage models, I was like, "That's not sustainable." And um, you know, when when I started to speak up, going, "We need to make a roadmap to the future. We don't have to do it today." I mean, in terms of changing everything today, but we do as as shepherds of the club of the organization, we got to figure out how to move forward. And, um, that was not met with a lot of positive thinking. Hmm. And, and, you know, when you have a board of directors and you got famous people on it and back that period of time, you had, um, Dick Mann and Jeff Smith, Jeff Smith was the executive director and that they're both famous guys, Jeff Smith, two-time, uh, world champ and, and Dick Mann, multi-time national champ. When you have people of that stature nobody wants to go against them right and they'll, they'll voice an opinion and everybody else just kind of goes along with it because they don't want to be they yeah don't want to be the one to go against it right and um the the japanese have a saying and i don't remember exactly what it is but you don't want to be the tall nail because that's the one that gets hit with a hammer first mm. and i never really cared about it. <laughs> I, I just you know uh, i'm going to tell you what i think yeah. and and I've got a touch of that too, and I've uh, been hit with the hammer of time too as well. <laughs> but you know, I, I one of the attorneys at, that Arma had at that period of time when we were in board meeting once said privately, "He was you're really interesting to watch." And I said, "Why is that?" He goes, "You don't say a whole lot until you get to a point." And I said, "Well, I'm trying to take everybody's opinion in." And fully understand what what we're talking about before I'm going to voice an opinion. I don't want to go off half cocked. And he goes, and everything that you offer is usually 
reasonable. And I go, yeah, but it's not received that way. And um, he said, well, I can't help you there. That's just the way it is. So um, that turned into, um, you know, a conflict. And and I remember we were at um, Steamboat Springs one year. We went there for 10 years and we would have one of our annual board of director meetings. And uh, Dick Mann said, hey, Rick, can you give me a back, uh, give me a ride back to my condo um, after the meeting? Sure. And on the ride, short ride back to the condo, he goes, you know why you're dangerous? Like, I didn't know I was dangerous, but why? He goes, because people listen to you and you're going to screw all this up. And I said, how am I going to screw it up? Well, you just keep wanting to change things. And I said, I'm just trying to say that this little time period isn't all there is. And the people that were 20, 10 years ago are going to be 30s. And then, and that's when nostalgia starts to kick in. And, and you have to, this has to be sustainable. And he's like, nope, that's going to mess it up. It, it should only be about this era. That's, that's, that's crazy talk. Well, but, you know, and, and, and I have a lot of respect for, for Dick. He's passed now, but that's the way he saw it. He didn't see it from my perspective. And my perspective was as an entrepreneur and going, we need to widen our audience. We need to have a, deal forward he he was pretty much okay with it just dying with him yeah you know it was, it was a selfish viewpoint at the end of the day I, I know you don't want to yeah no but ultimately him, but yeah ultimately it was a, a selfish viewpoint um and you know i i learned the the reason i'm i'm, I'm uh kind of soft about him is i learned a lot of things from him I mean, he was a really he was a thinker mm -hmm. about a lot of stuff and um, I appreciated all that. And, and I got a lot of wisdom from him that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. But he was dead wrong about that. And I told him that. I said, You're, this, the, the, this is not a, a good business plan. Now, on the other side, yeah, Jeff Smith. And I have no problem telling you I hated him. <laughs> and, and it takes a certain amount of energy to actually hate somebody. He's worth it. Really? Yeah. He's he just... Um, yeah, you know, he's probably nice to his family, but that's it. And we were, to give you an example, we were at a race at Farley Castle in England and Jeff's, you know, was British, right? And he was a British champion. He was multi-time world champion, so on and so forth. And we're both up on the stage and they introduce him. He got like a, a golf clap. They introduced me and I got a big round of applause. I, I didn't like him and I felt bad for him. Oh, really? And I asked somebody afterwards, what the hell was that about? And they go, oh, he was a total prick when he was a pro. And people would want to get his autograph. Only difference now is he's not a pro. Well, <laughs> yeah, and he's he was worse. but uh. the, And he would just tell people to piss off, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not here to sign your autographs. I'm here to race motorcycles. And... And that was kind of his outlook on life. He was very, um, you know, me centric and, and, but, but to do business with him was really, it was uncomfortable because he wasn't, in my opinion, an honorable person and he would work behind the scenes. So you didn't know who you were really dealing with. And, and Dick Mann was more straight up. Yeah. He would tell me what he thought and I'd tell him what, what I thought. So, 
Um, yeah. He's about one of the only people in my life that, man, eh, my older sister, she's probably worth it too. <laughs> oh, if you can't hate your family, who can you hate? Her? <laughs> um, all right, let's take a little break here. Uh, we've, we got a lot more cool stuff to get into here, but uh, this is going to be your Troy Designs timeout. Stick around. We'll be back here with more Rick Dowdy. Friends, family, and loved ones, I bet you haven't purchased a Father's Day gift yet, have you? Not to fear, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming are here. I'm talking about our friends at Manscaped. They are saving the day yet again with the total package for the father figure in your life this year. It's time to upgrade his game from waist to face with this exclusive offer. Have him join the 8 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get 20% off plus free shipping using the code WhiskeyThrottle at Manscaped.com. Let's start with the ultimate Father's Day MVP, the Performance Package 4.0. In this package, you're going to find their signature lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 ears and nose hair trimmer, and we know their ear hair is out of control. Like, let's just face it. If you're old enough to have kids, you probably got hair squirreling out of your ears like a bad set of weeds. You also get the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold his goodies. And we can't forget about the moneymaker. Manscaped has absolutely changed the game with their new Beard Hedger Pro Kit for fathers around the world. Included is the Beard Hedge Trimmer, Beard Shampoo and Conditioner, Beard Oil, Beard Balm, and two free gifts with their signature beard comb and scissors. It's a lot. Uh, we all know dads love their comfort. If his grooming routine is already dialed, make sure to hook him up with Manscaped's Boxers 2.0. These are without a doubt the best boxers for men of all ages. Super comfortable, can confirm. These things are like, uh, you know, slipping into a nice pair of pajamas, but you can wear them all day. Whether he's mowing the lawn, taking out the trash, golfing in the sun, these moisture-wicking boxers breathe without breaking a sweat. So get 20% off and free shipping using the code WhiskeyThrottle at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com. Use the code WhiskeyThrottle. Make this Father's Day one you won't forget with Manscaped. There's a new product on the market that's going to help you with your riding and racing, and it's Elevate Action Sports. If you've not yet gone and checked it out at ElevateActionSports.com, it's a collective of riding coaches, the likes of which has never been put together. Grant Langston, Ryan Hughes, Jeff Emick, Johnny Campbell, and myself, David Pingree, bringing all of our years of experience in professional racing to one place with professionally produced videos and all kinds of supporting staff to help you with your mental side of racing, your physical side, your bike setup, your bike maintenance, we cover it all. Get to Elevate Action Sports right now and join the community. Dunlop. There is a reason every AMA championship in the past decade was won on Dunlop tires. They are the best. Choose the best performing tire and a brand that has never wavered in their support of our sport. Choose Dunlop. Pro Circuit. Pro Circuit products are designed with one goal in mind, winning. Through passion and hard work, Pro Circuit has operated the most successful 250 team in the history of the sport. They use that same formula when developing exhaust, engine, and suspension parts for every brand. When only the highest level of performance is acceptable, trust Pro Circuit. 
Since 2009, Seat Concepts has been dedicated to making the best aftermarket seats. More comfort, more grip, more riding. For 10 years, we've continued to raise the bar. Innovation and American craftsmanship make Seat Concepts the world-leading manufacturer of power sports seats. Something from nothing, that's what Nihilo Concepts is about. It starts with a spark, an idea, a concept, which leads to a design and finishes with engineered excellence with the highest quality products created with durability in mind. All our products are made in the USA at our state-of-the-art facility in Stewart, Florida. Whether you are a weekend warrior, ride for fun, or at the highest level of competition, Nihilo Concepts offers innovative titanium, aluminum, and carbon fiber parts for your dirt bike. We offer a wide variety of products that you can customize to your liking. Browse our site for foot pegs, brake tips, engine components, specialty tools, frame grip tape, lever grips, carbon fiber components, motor stands, our secondary on-switch, plus much more. Head to NihiloConcepts.com and see for yourself why factory teams like Red Bull KTM, Rockstar Husqvarna, Troy Lee Designs Gas Gas, Orange Brigade, Club MX, KLM Gas Gas, and some of the fastest riders in the world choose Nihilo Concepts. Specialized Bicycles. Specialized leads the way in the world of bicycling. Whether it's cross-country racing, downhill, e-bikes, enduro, road, gravel, dual slalom, dirt jumping, or all mountain bikes that do it all, Specialized has the perfect ride for you. The brand is synonymous with engineering excellence and innovation that steers the industry. Visit your local Specialized dealer for a test ride and see just how good Specialized products are. With a rich history in motocross, ProX has been dedicated to supplying quality components since 1975. Whether you're rebuilding an engine or just need a new chain, ProX Racing Parts aims to bridge the gap between OE quality and affordability. ProX has over 9,000 part numbers and over 60 different product types that are manufactured by highly reputable or even OEM suppliers and are offered at affordable prices to help keep riders on the bike instead of in the garage. Visit ProX.com to search parts for your bike or check them out at your favorite online or local dealer. Audio jump. The guys are just breaking in their race bikes, which will leave on the semi this Saturday to go to the first Supercross for our coast in Orlando. Uh, so the guys are just be goofing off a little bit, do some cool photos, do some cool videos. When you go racing, you want to do well, but a big key is keeping the bikes on the track. That's why we chose to work with Motul. Expectations coming in as a rookie is just to try and get my feet wet and uh, honestly just send it, see where I end up and uh, do my best out there, but just ride aggressive and ride like myself in practice and uh, I should have a good time. Challenges of this sport, I believe, is just simply staying healthy. Uh, with how fast we're going um, and what we're doing, your margin for mistake is really, really small. Stay sick. If you have little rippers, then you have had to have seen Stay Sick Bikes by now. 
we have created bike and experiences that allow kids to develop sooner and empower them to find their own ride. From learning to ride to sharpening skills, the Stasic promise is accelerated growth. Whatever path your family chooses, it's going to be the ride of your life. Stasic Stability Cycles. I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Welcome back. That was your Troy Lee Designs timeout. If you guys have not visited TroyLeeDesigns.com, go check them out. Uh, all kinds of new summer line gear, SE, GP, all that is out. They've got some new off-road stuff. If you've not seen the Scout line, uh, the paint department is firing. And uh, the mountain bike stuff is out. All kinds of things going on. TroyLeeDesigns.com. Check them out. And uh, we're also doing a really cool feature on our social media page called Collected, walking through all of the collection of helmets I have. And uh, when we finish with that, we're going to be moving over to Troy's and looking at a lot of his memorabilia, which is incredible. Yeah. Incredible, incredible. Uh, there's a set of Nikki Hayden's leathers, race leathers in there. And... Um, I don't. I know I couldn't afford them, but like I want them so bad, you know. Uh, anyway, really cool stuff. So check that out uh, when we talk about TLD stuff. Just amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, TroyTheDesigns.com. Uh, let's jump back into your story here. So one of the things I thought was interesting, um, as you were a board member of this uh, ARMA, uh, which for those who don't know, American is it historical or AHRMA? So what's the yeah. American Historic Racing Motorcycle Association. Okay. Um, you you did something that I thought was pretty pretty cool rather than because you know you're you're not just motocross, you were dirt track and there's road racing and trials and things. So you went and did a little bit of everything. Well, I felt it in all of it. Right. I, I felt like if we were going to uh, pass legislation on it, I wanted to know from a rider's perspective. So I bought all those different kinds of bikes, went and did those races. You know, I wasn't the best guy at, at all those disciplines, but um, as a board member, I felt like it was imperative to know from the ground level what what we were talking about. Sure. Yeah, I, I just appreciate that. That's, um, not everyone would do that. Yeah, I mean, I had some, I mean, it's hard to have a bad day on a good motorcycle. So yeah. I, I, I had a lot of fun learning that stuff and, you know, not, jumping into road racing until you're in your 40s that was a bit of an eye opener yeah it's different right you know i've done a handful of track days and i really enjoy it uh you know when i got into supermoto i got really familiar with the asphalt because that was 80 percent of what we're doing right and went and did some track days and man it's a different animal um but really fun and in a completely different way for me than what motocross is right uh the things that are scary are totally different and the things that are fun are different, you know? Uh, well, with road racing, it's concentration, right? You got to be concentrated for a long period of time. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, the risk factors are different. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, you know, you, you've got a lot of time to listen to your motor on a road race bike, right? Mm -hmm. And, you, and you, if something goes bad with your motor, it's going to probably end in an ugly way. Yeah, I, I think that people don't, and, and this is a, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but as a guy who raced, you know, grew up in motocross and supercross, but then got into some off-road, got into supermoto. I did some hill climbs, uh, the mini bike racing thing. I've kind of tried to do as much as I can, snow bikes and 
you know, uh, I would say the only thing I haven't really probably gotten into is trials, mm -hmm. which I'm going to change that this year. Um, and I haven't done any road racing, but I've done, like I said, multiple track days and oh. I love it. On what kind of bike? Different bikes, um, some smaller 400 stuff. I did a 600 um, uh, R6. Right. Um, I I don't care about a thousand seats. <laughs> I don't need to go that right. fast. The 600 was all I needed. Yeah, the little 600s are no slouches these days. No, no, no. So uh, for me, it's just that feel when you can hit a breaking point right and time a corner right. I mean, it's a cool feeling. Like I said, just different things that are cool about that. Right. Than motocross. Yeah. Get your knee to the asphalt and you're like, hell yeah, look at that scuff on there. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you, but you learn. My, my point is you, you can learn a lot about a motorcycle and how to, how to manipulate one in, in any kind of discipline. Right. right. I learned things as supermoto that made me a better motor, motocross racer right. and vice versa and all around. I think it's motocross fans are very isocentric. It's, I love motocross. That's it. And a lot of them won't open their eyes and go, oh, well, what is off-road about? Let me try some trials. Let me go get on a street bike. You know, and some of it's cost prohibitive, but. But trials will change you a lot. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not always a bunch of throttle. Sometimes it's the opposite of that, right? Yeah. When you turn off the the gas, the rear tire hooks up and pulls you through sec sections and you, you don't lean down into a corner. You let the bike lean and you kind of. Yeah. There's a bunch of, of things that, that once you ride trials, you go, man, why didn't I do that on a motocross bike? Right. Yeah. So anyway, that was my only point is I think there's a lot to be learned yeah. no matter what discipline you're doing. And you actually won a uh, a Sportsman of the Year award. Was that kind of based on all of the stuff you'd been doing? Well, every year they were giving out a Sportsman of the Year award. You know, I was I was winning championships in motocross and and, and some of the other stuff, but Really, the the holy grail of of their awards was Sportsman of the Year, and they waited till the end of the night. There was a a big banquet in Daytona, and, and there were several years there where I thought I was shoe in, right? And I, I was pretty disappointed when it didn't happen. Not because I felt like they owed it to me. It's just the, the criteria they were using. I thought, yeah, I'm I'm going to probably get it this year. Didn't happen, didn't happen. <laughs> the year that it happened, I believe it was 93, I was sitting in the back of the room drinking scotch. Getting drunk because you thought you weren't going to win again? I, well, I, yeah, I was like, <laughs> screw it. Sent my family upstairs to the, the hotel room. And I was sitting back there with Gary Nixon and Roger DeCoster and a bunch of people. And we were just drinking scotch and having a great time. And they announced it and I didn't even hear it. I'm oh, still back there just... And there's people going, hey, Rick, I'm like, oh, hold on. Gary Nixon's telling me a funny story right now. Like, no, they've called your name three times <laughs> for what? Sportsman of the Year. You need to go up there. I was like, oh, shit, this is not going to be a good speech. <laughs> Can we see this drunk speech uh, somewhere on YouTube? <laughs> no. Thank God. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting because it was totally out of the blue then. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. But I wouldn't have traded those stories with uh, Gary Nixon and and Roger. That was a that was a pretty good night. Yeah. Um. So take us through. You've talked a little bit about your butting heads with Dick Mann, and uh, sounds like Jeff Smith as well. Did he have the same kind of views that that Mann did in terms of what vintage was? 
Yeah, he wasn't as Jeff Smith wasn't as um, it wasn't as much of an ideology issue. He just he he wanted to get paid as much as he could get paid and do as little work as possible. Hmm. And that I resented that as somebody that works hard. And you know, I suggested once uh, in a board meeting, hey, since you're traveling around and all this stuff, we'll buy you a, an enclosed trailer, keep your bike in, indoors. And put signage on it, right? I mean, you, then you're advertising for our organization on all these highways. That he's, I'm not, I'm not pulling a box trailer, but where you're pulling a flatbed trailer now, what's the difference? I'm not doing that, you know. And it was all about what he would and wouldn't do, and how much he got paid. And I remember one year, uh, he was showing us how much money we were supposed to give him for a raise. And, you know, at that point I had 60 employees and been in business a while. And I was like, you know, usually I ask one critical question of an employee that comes to me and says they want to raise. What more are you going to do for me? Because I'm already paying you for what you're doing. If you want more money, what more are you going to do? And he thought that was idiotic. And I was like, well, that's where we differ, right? So... He, I can't, he was milking the gravy train mm. and, and I didn't like it. And my, my beef with, uh, Dick Mann was more of an ideological. Yeah, yeah. It, it really was. Um, and he, and he thought it should be of a certain era and not go any farther. And I didn't think so. Yeah. So how did that, um, play out? Well, Dick, like I said before, was influential because he was famous and Jeff Smith were, was famous. And anything that, that kept me down, Jeff Smith was for that. So when Dick proposed that we have a moratorium of two or three years that prevented me from even speaking about other classes for the future, I was like, man, am I a Russia? Mm -hmm. You're going to tell me I can't speak? I can't bring it up? And it passed because every you know, they all did it in unison, right? And I just went, okay, I'm going to do it myself. I, I already did it with the vintage thing. I can do an evolution thing. I, I'll, I'll write s simple rules and, and have simple classes and I'll go back on the road and I'm going to watch the evolution of motocross series. And I did. And I just did the whole 40,000 miles a year going to a lot of the same promoters and you know it, it took a while and we had to have support classes like modern bike support and vintage support but it caught on it had to catch on because the the people that were coming in had no attachment to a honda elsinore right and i was i was telling this story before that at one board meeting i said look guys my kids were say five and six under 10 years old the bikes that they're going to be interested in restoring haven't been built yet. They're on a piece of paper in Japan. And if we ignore that, they're not going to be ARMA members. And I kind of like to see them be ARMA members in the future. Yeah. And they are like, yeah, we're not worried about that. And as a consequence, ARMA is in serious financial um, peril of going away at this point. Well, sadly, that they, I, I don't want it to shows that. their own history. I know. I, I don't want. I I put too much of my own time in it, 
to want to see that happen. Is current management there still unwilling to? I think they're. I think they're. Um, you know, they're the last guys on the Titanic, and they just start fiddling. They're they're doing everything they can do in a hurry, but it, I don't think it's going to be enough. I, I would love to consult with them and come in and say, hey, number one, take half of the crap that's in your um, in your rule book and get rid of it. Start paring this thing down to make it as easy and as inviting to as many people right. as you can. Yeah. Because having all these finite rules, I mean, if you read the the rule book, you wouldn't go. Is that right? You No, I, yeah. I got a Rickman that I used to own 20 years ago back and, and they have a fairly good, um, you know, vintage following with those kinds of bikes. And I thought, well, they're racing at Laguna Seca and there's a motocross track at Laguna Seca that, that rarely ever gets used. I raced on it in the nineties and I thought, man, I'd like to take that bike and go race there again. And I started reading the rule book. I got two pages into it. Really? No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to jump through all those hoops. And that's sad. Yeah, that that's is really sad. What a dumb way to lose participants, you know. Well, keep it very simple. Because if I show up, if I have a vintage bike, I, I'm like, hey, this seems cool. Right. Let me go check it out. And I get there, and they're like, oh no, you have this. You didn't do that. You, you have the wrong. You have the wrong color number plates. Your your helmet doesn't meet our spec. You're this. You're that. You, you you've got four and a, a eight inches of travel <laughs> on your rear shocks. I mean, it it gets that crazy. Jeez. And um. It doesn't need to be because it's it's a bunch of middle-aged guys just trying to have fun and older. Well, and if they would lean into it, there's also a group of kind of hipster kids that are getting into it. Right. Uh, LaPaglia's kid. Um, but all the stuff. Brain farting on his name, but he loves it and he's fast. Oh, those guys. And he's dragging in a bunch of his, you know. But those bikes that never make it through arm attack. Is that right? Yeah. No, I mean. Too much travel and too much yeah. this and too much that. And I personally, when I see those kids ride um, vintage bikes like modern bikes, I get a big tickle out of it. It's God damn! Yeah. Can you imagine if you took those guys back in time and had them ride that stuff at a at a national in 1974? Yeah, I wouldn't even know what to do. They'd lose their mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they ride them with modern style and technique, but and and speed there. Yeah, really fast. Um, so. You know, you're you've made efforts to try to get all these clubs into kind of one big series. Yeah, you know, when when I uh, started the evolution thing, um, I I thought, well, there's a bunch of independent clubs. They're they're all kind of doing their own thing. I don't want to go in and say, okay, uh, I'm going to give you a set of rules and we're all going to run by them. Uh, you know, I'll I'll run this club that I'm running in California. You can run the one in Massachusetts, and you can run the one in Florida. But we'll we'll just have a series that if people want to come and participate, it's all on one calendar, and and it'll be it'll be good for our sport overall. Mm-hmm. And you find out pretty quick why they're independent because <laughs> they're not interested in being attached to anything else, which is fine, which is fine. So I I gave that up pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, but um, you'd think they'd all want to see it thrive but i guess this is this is something um i guess it doesn't surprise me that much because in our sport i see that so often when people have something that is theirs makes them money or something they're proud of man they squeeze the puppy too tight 
You know what I mean? They just refuse to let anything go for the for the kind of the greater good if it takes some control or dollars out of their pocket. Yeah, and this would have put more dollars in their pocket because we weren't coming in saying, hey, you've got to give us a percentage or any of that kind of stuff. The only thing that was going to be combined was a unified calendar. Well, and, 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 and some advertising. It's like, okay, if we're going to do um, national advertising, then everybody puts in whatever, 100 bucks, hmm. right? You got 10 clubs, you got a $1,000 budget to put it here, there, and and wherever. But but because it was part of a series, I mean, you'd be surprised uh, how many guys chase the Arma series around, how much money they spend and hmm. uh, how, how far they go. So I know people will do it. Hmm. That's wild. Well, uh, are and, and are those people that chase that around, I mean, they don't have a problem with everything being pre-65? Well, they're, I mean, now Arma has adopted all that stuff that they said they wouldn't do. Hmm. I mean, virtually, you know, to the letter of classes for the most part of all the stuff that I was proposing back then. Hmm. Um, matter of fact, one of the guys that was, um, charged with coming up with the class designations and all that stuff and the structure called me on the side and goes, hey, would you mind if I use your stuff? I'm like, no, because it makes sense. Use it. And he goes, don't tell anybody I said this. <laughs> or, or I asked you, I don't give a shit. It just makes sense, right? Yeah. With, especially with vintage stuff, you would look for technological breaks in, mm. in, in design that make a difference. And that's where that class of the delineating marks. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's not that I'm that smart. I mean, anybody could look at it and go, well, disc breaks make a big difference, right? So you have a class pre-disc break and class after and whatever. Is Dick Man rolling over in his grave? <laughs> I I don't know. I don't I never really knew how he felt about me, but um I think at on some level he liked me also. And uh, I just different some. I think on some level, he he recognized that, you know, what I was advocating was, you know, going to be better for the overall. But I mean, it was so bad when I was, you know, pushing the idea. They had shirts made up that said, see no evil, Evo, right? Say no no evil, evil. do do no evil. (laughs) That's pretty funny, but stupid. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a, there's a saying that, uh, I think is pretty funny that gets used in the fire service when stuff's not happening. Uh, you know, like a hundred years of tradition unimpeded by progress. <laughs> and I, and I feel like that's kind of what those guys yeah. were yeah. leaning into that. Um, so the American Retrocross series, kind of what you're building out here. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, when I moved to, um, Southern California in, in uh, 98, there was a, a club called um, Southwest Vintage Grace Racing Group. They just went by SBRG. And they had some vintage races, you know, Carlsbad and a couple of other places. And, and I just, when I moved down here, I started going to their stuff. And it was pretty haphazard. I mean, you would sign up on the hood of some guy's rusty old fourth pick. I'm of course you would. <laughs> and... And, you know, that they would get around to practice at 10, 30, 11 o'clock, hope, you know. I, it, I mean, everything was just, it was disorganized. Mm. And so after seeing that for a year or so, I threw my hat in the ring to, to be one of the officers of the club. 
And um, they they came to me afterwards and go, oh man, you only missed it by one vote. Well, whatever. I don't need another job. I was just trying to help. <laughs> and uh, I found out afterwards that they, you know, they were cooking the vote, kind of like Arizona. And uh, they uh, they had the election the next year, and I threw my hat in the ring. And then they they said, "Oh, well, we got a tie." And the gal that was sitting next to me goes, "Oh, I forgot to vote. I'm voting for Rick." So I, <laughs> I became president of the club. And the first thing I did is like bought plastic tables so people could write, you know, on, and sign up on a table instead of somebody's truck. I, I bought shirts for all the guys that worked for the club so you knew who they were versus mm-hmm. the other the other guys so you could go ask questions and I, I developed a logo for them and you know uh, the the stuff you do for basic a, stuff a club yeah, yeah. right or a business and. Um, in about a year, half of them quit. Why? Because I was ruining it. It used to be, it used to be more fun when it was simple. And um, you know, these were half of the club guys quit, and they were the ones that were supplying the Ford pickup, <laughs> and just had that you know thumb in the eye approach to things. So, like, well, okay, let's keep going on my own, and I did, and it started building, and then we we started becoming more more professional and you know we had a laptop at at sign up and scoring was done immediately and and then i i always try and look at whatever the downsides are whether it's risk or whether it's inconvenience or whatever and and i hated going to races that just drug on all damn day for no good reason um so that was one of the first things is how do we get this to end earlier in the day and um We've been running it now for 20 some years and we're done at one o'clock. Done by one. I like that. We, we start, you know, but this is the other thing that pissed people off. I, when we close sign up, it's done. Right. And then we go into a rider's meeting before we put you out on the track. Uh, but, but we're done. And if you show up late, which a bunch of those guys were just used to showing up whenever we don't run late practice, late sign up, late this, late that, cause we can't keep our schedule. So, um, 8.45, sign-offs over. 8.45 to 9 o'clock is a writer's meeting. Practice starts at 9. We're done. Ready to start the first moto at 10, and the day is over by 1. Hmm. And we, and that includes, you know, giving out awards. And I didn't know that that was something that went away, did you? Giving away awards? Yeah. I don't race with anybody. Yeah, else. I, mean, I don't really do. But yeah, I've heard. done Mammoth. They still do one there, but like I haven't done really. Any yeah, but I mean, like local races, you know, you can pick it up next week or hmm. whatever. I was just like, that's part of the fun, right? You know, clapping hmm. for the people that that you know, or you know, having yeah. people clap for you. I mean, it's part of why you race. Part of the experience. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. Give me your perspective, you know, having been around the sport for so long, just from from early days um, of the sport to what it's become, what's your perspective on cost tracks, promoters, bikes, e-bikes, where we're, where we're potentially heading, all right. that stuff? Well, I think that if you look at, at the heyday, the biggest time period and boom uh, of motocross in the United States, the tracks were easier 
So more people could do it. The, the bikes were more affordable, so more people could afford it. Uh, and there were lots of them. I mean, there were motocross tracks everywhere. So I don't know that you're going to put motocross tracks everywhere, but if you can look at how to um, make the tracks, you know, doable for more people, the more people will ride. If you if you have classes for bikes that are more affordable, like we have, um, we have a, a class for decade bikes. So it's bikes ten years old and older, and then it goes back from there to like ninety six. So, and then you know it has different break offs based on technology all the way back. But a bike that's ten years old, you don't typically find on the starting line of a new or a current motocross, you know, well, you can buy those for a fraction of what a new bike costs, probably a third of what a new bike costs, throw some tires on it and set suspension for you and go have fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think more, if, if you're a, a regional guy out there anywhere in the country, if you're not offering something like that to um, bolster your, your turnout, try it. I mean, you can always go back, but my my theory is if you offer a class and nobody's in it, it didn't cost you anything. If you don't offer a class and a guy's there with whatever it is, you lost money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and the other thing that we did is you could show up with any bike and ride two classes. So we do the first part of the day is moto one is vintage class pre-75 but it's all broken up into age groups 40 50 60 70 well and then there's evo then there's modern and then we have another vintage class and this time is broken up by displacement or it's two stroke four stroke hmm. so you brought one bike you can race race one and race five hmm. you, you you want to ride an evo bike you race it and race uh two and race six okay so to you know, and modern bike guys get get two classes that they can ride in their A troop class, and then then um, their displacement class, mm. and and so now all of a sudden you're getting two entry fees instead of just one. I mean, it, and we don't make any money at, at at doing these races. All the money goes right back into what what we're doing, but um, you know, it gives people a place to come. They get done quick. The track's safe. That uh, they're still involved in the sport. And I, that, that's a success. And if the ambulance doesn't run so much, yeah. the better. That's the big one, right? Yep. Um, you've got, you've, you've, uh, you've had some big moments. You've got a lot of stories here. You had something happen at Farley Castle and I'm actually headed over there this August, uh, for the vet world championship race that James Dopp's putting on. What a cool place for vintage or for, you know, oh, vet riders. Huge history. So much history at that place. Um, tell me that your Roger DeCoster story of at Farley. At Farley, um, well, I I don't know about Roger at Farley, but can uh, you pass Roger or something over there? No, I passed Roger at at Hollister. Oh, I was at Hollister. That was a okay. that was a, a when we were talking about big moments. We we were doing a, a magazine article for Cycle World magazine, and we invited a bunch of old pros and, and put them on vintage bikes. And Roger had always wanted to, always wanted to ride an ESO, which was a Czech bike. Yeah. 
Um, and they were built in one corner of the CZ factory and they were four stroke and he just loved the way they looked. And I had one. So I was dangling like the carrot. Hey, if you come up to Hollister and do this thing, you can ride my ESO. So he went out on the track and it was Jeff Smith and Dick Mann and Brad Lackey and John DeSoto. And I was sitting there thinking, when am I ever going to have this chance again? Right? Probably not in my lifetime. So I suited up and I went and got, the ESO was a 500 from the mid 60s. And I got on my gold star from the same period and um, started following Roger around. And we went around two or three laps and he wasn't being Roger DeCoster. He was out there just cruising. Yeah. Right. But he left the door open and I passed him. And I was like, you can't take that away from me. He he did it <laughs> the next corner, <laughs> but I, I'll always have that, yeah. that pass. And I don't know, for me, like whether it was playing football with Bart Starr in my dreams or riding with Roger DeCoster in my dreams, mm-hmm. I always had it was that, that fantasy opportunity to go ride with your hero, right? Yeah. And man, it was right there in front of me and I had to take it. That's awesome. Did you have something at Farley? Because I've got that in my notes. Well, yeah. Something. Farley, I, I was invited to come over there and race. And, um, you know, it was, it was a pre-65 big GP thing that they're having over there. Um, and I'd only ever seen Farley in magazines and all that stuff. And, and I did have uh, lunch with Roger before I was going over. He goes, man. <laughs> that track can be gnarly. It's really fast and it's got big holes and be careful. So, um, I trained for a year, hired a physical trainer and just busted my butt. Mm. And I'd never done that before. So I, I was in good shape. I was riding a lot and, um, went over there and got arm pump in the first corner. <laughs> that place is arm pump. Like I got arm pump in the first corner. Yeah. I was so jacked up ready to go right cool. it was like mcgrath that that bud light year that he was having arm pump all the time and and i just guys just started going by me and i thought you know what the only way i'm gonna get to the end of this moto wherever i finish is just back or down and try and loosen my arms up and so on and so forth then about mid moto and they run much longer races than they, we did here in the states i i was like all right, my, my hands, you know how it is when you have arm pump, your fingers don't work. And my fingers were starting to work and I was starting to catch people. And then, you know, I was getting maybe one a lap. And then last corner, you go around a tree and the finish line's right there. Mm-hmm. And the leader was ahead of me and he went wide. And I was like, score, cut across. And all the British fans, right? You would have thought they'd be rooting for the British guy. And I'm, wearing full on, you know, American flag stuff. And they were nuts. They were crazy. They were high-fiving me when I was riding back to the pits. I just threw my Jofa and my gloves. <laughs> I was getting- Hamming it up. Yeah. And and then I went out and won the second moto. So it was, to me, to train for a year for one race and then go 1-1, one, one, it was yeah, a big, fun. big day. Well, and on an iconic place like that too. Yeah. Um, where do you see vintage racing going in the next, well, decade or so? I think as long as people continue to feel nostalgic, which is natural as they age, they're going to gravitate towards the things that they like, right? Yeah. And so 
if the, the, the car world's any indication of what's going to happen with the motorcycle world, um, you know, bikes like my old BSA gold star are going to become so valuable. People aren't going to race them. Hmm. Um, and, th- and there is a point where they get so val- valuable, nobody can buy them and then they become less valuable. That's happening now with uh, board track racers from the teens. Mm. I mean, you used to it used to be that a board track racer from the teens, you know, like a Thor, or are you a Harley, or any of the ones that that were popular, um, were two hundred fifty thousand dollars and up. Jeez, I mean, it, it was a cost of a house back then, and um, now you can buy them for a third of that hmm. because the audience got right, more. right. Hmm. Um, so I think that what is considered vintage and that's why it never really you know in arma they called it vintage post vintage it's like postmodern art right vintage is whatever you you like from your time period mm-hmm. and so if you want to call it retro or vintage i don't care what label you put on it as long as people still want to go back and and revisit and ride the stuff that that they liked they're gonna and they're mm. and, and smart promoters are gonna give them an opportunity to do it. Mm. Uh, we were just talking earlier about um, you know the the bikes from now. If you went back twenty five years, really not that different, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you get a ninety eight YC two fifty and a two thousand twenty three YC two fifty. Other than aluminum frame, it's pretty yeah. much the same bike. Yeah, um, you you do that same thing in. Um, you know, 1985 and go back to 1960, massive difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I think the, the good thing is we, we, in the motorcycle world, we don't have that period of crap stuff like the car world has. I mean, there's stuff from the mid 70s to mid to late 80s. It's just all, I don't know anybody that's going to want to restore that stuff. Yeah, there was nothing that. No, it was, it was all, uh, EPA to death and, and there were ugly designs and I, I don't see that stuff ever becoming popular, but that bodes well for people who have the older stuff, you know, the muscle cars and all that stuff. They're, they're going to hold value for a lot longer. 60s Cadillacs and Well, and, 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 the, and the Cudas and all, all the stuff that's that's really bitching. Um, but, but if you look at what's happening in the last 20 years, muscle cars are yeah, the modern muscle cars come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And you think e-bikes are coming? I mean, what's your take there? That's a sort of the opposite of vintage, futuristic uh, stuff. Well, I mean, w- if they come into Vogue, then internal combustion stuff will be vintage. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm still not 100% convinced that that's the future. I'm not either. You know, I know they. That's the. That's the line to to sell for. Right, green, but um, I think anyone that does enough to dig into what it takes to make those batteries and the, you know, even a car, they say you got to get to at least 60,000 miles before that's the break even point right. with an electric car. So, how many people driving around a Tesla are going to keep it past 60,000 miles? Most of them are at, you know, trained them in at 30, 40,000. You know, on a new one. I heard uh, Jay Lennon was talking about this very thing recently, and he goes, you yeah, know, the, the cool thing about um, electric cars is there's no motor to wear out. So you, you buy the car and, and, and you're good to go. Well, as much as I like Jay a lot, but it, it, as, as much as he'd like to say that that's true, 
brakes wear out, bushings wear out. I mean, you know, bearings wear out. All that stuff still is in those cars, mm-hmm. and then that stuff's going to age out. So yeah. And then what do you do with um, those batteries? And how much is the replacement battery going to be? I mean, I think we're going to get to a point where those replacement batteries and making your Tesla um, whole again is going to cost more than just buying the new electric, whatever it is, mm. right? One thing on the motorcycle side that I, I hope we don't screw this up where they try to either integrate electric bikes into our current class structure or just replace it. I think that will be, you know, talk to the talk to the people. Anytime there's an electric bike post somewhere out there in our space, read the comments. People are not very receptive to that. And I think right. they're worried about what happened with four strokes. But I think there's a there's a place, you know, whether it's indoor facilities or urban facilities, um, tracks that are on the brink of being shut down because of noise. I think there's some possibilities for them. But man, like I said, if they try to replace internal combustion or try to just say, okay, well, this one, it's got this wattage or this whatever the their metric is, we'll put that with the 250s. Nah, man, we're in trouble. I think the same thing will happen uh, that happened with four strokes. So, well, if you look at history, though, uh, there it's gone back and forth between two stroke and four stroke, right? I mean, in the '60s, it was four strokes, and yeah. two strokes came in and killed the four strokes, and then four strokes came back and killed the two strokes. And if they can deal with the emissions um, issues of two strokes, which they're starting to, with fuel injection and mm-hmm. ignition and a bunch of other stuff, it can go back the other way because. As much as I like four-stroke um, modern motocross bikes, they're not light. No, a two-stroke engine's a much simpler, well, and much a, more efficient. And a light bike's engine. more fun to ride than a heavy bike. Yeah, yeah. So if somebody could figure that part out, and there's some new engine designs. Some I don't know if you've seen some of the, like that liquid piston. Um, that's the name of the company. Oh, no. Yeah, they've got a, a motor, and then the Honda's working on a, a new motor that, um, is it going to be a big alternative to electric? Mm. Um, I, I, the battery thing, for example, on the recharge time is the, the killer. It's ridiculous. It's just the killer. Or if you're a dual sporter, adventure rider, off-road guy, yeah. you just shorten your ride, you know, 40 minutes, maybe in, maybe an hour. Right. That's not enough. But if you look at, at like a modern uh, 250F, right, it gets to an age where you're going to have to do all the motor work to yeah. it. And then that has a, a certain cost affiliated with it to pull it, rebuild it, put it back in, all that stuff, freshen up the rest of the bike. Well, guess what? That costs more than the bike's worth. Yeah. You can't sell that. So th- that th- those bikes are tough to get rid of mm-hmm. for that for that very reason. And that could start happening with the cars and the bikes because if... The cost of refurbing your Tesla or your Stark or your whatever is more than just buying a new efficient version of the same. Those things are worthless. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, time will tell for sure. I think we got plenty of time. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think it's going to happen over. I hope you're right. I hope I'm old and decrepit and (laughs) out of it. Um, I know you've got some great stories just been around the sport. You've, you've, you know a lot of the people in it with different riders. Tell us, tell us some good stories. 
some of the industry people we'd know. Uh, you know, I was I was thinking about that today before I, I came down here, and I remembered some stuff. A, I've never told anybody, and B, uh, I completely forgot. Mm. I when I started Vintage Iron, I, you know, I still had my other company called Energy Seal at the same time, so I had several secretaries and a big office and all that stuff. And I had one secretary that guys just love to talk to. Just they, whatever. They get her on the phone and I'd, I'd be pissed because you're like, you don't need to spend that much time setting an appointment, whatever. But she'd always be on the phone. And um, Jimmy Winert was a famous writer for Kawasaki and Yamaha and all that stuff. And Was that how you say his last name? Well, Weiner. Weiner. It was how our stories are. Yeah. Well, what, whatever it is. Okay. Yeah. He'll be, he'll be pissed at me telling the story. <laughs> so it won't matter. Okay. <laughs> that'll be the least. Jimmy, of... one nerd. He's a different guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, but that'll be the least of the worries mispronouncing his name. So he calls me to talk about something, right? It's the early days of Vintage Iron. And he starts talking to my secretary. And apparently this goes on for a lot more time than I was aware of. Okay. And then he starts calling her at home. He's not married. You know, let's make that clear. He wasn't married at the time. And uh, and so they're having this phone romance. And um, he calls me one day and uh, she actually puts him through to me instead of chatting him up. And uh, he goes, hey, Rick, I'm thinking about coming out. I'm like, California because he was in New York right and he goes yeah he goes I'm, I'm gonna come out and see your secretary and I said okay I said Jim I, I couldn't think how to put it to him right because I knew whatever I said if he said it to her and it came back bad it would be you know I'd lose a good secretary I said well Jim you know there's like T curls are like 125 class and then there's like, yeah, your average girl might be a 250. This girl's more of a open class girl. And, and you just, he goes, oh, yeah, but I mean, I'm just crazy about her. I'm thinking about coming out and, and, and proposing to her. I'm like, oh my God, really? He goes, yeah, I'm going to be there on Friday. Well, I, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Right. You get him the heads up. I, yeah, I gave him the 500. <laughs> you can't, if you have, Parse out that analogy. Yeah, All right. He, best of luck. He was a 500 champ. I think he told me he so. It's like, okay. Well, come Monday, we're back in the office, right? And uh, I, I said, hey, did, uh, did did Jim come out over the weekend? She goes, yeah, but he he um, he had to go back because he had a medical uh, emergency. I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, he had some sort of abdominal issue. I'm thinking, oh. He was sick to his stomach. Yeah. And uh, so he just came, he, that guy's a salesman, man. He sold her on whatever problem he was, and he is on the neck on the next day. Out, yeah. Wow. <laughs> a lot of commitment to not have a peek at her first. <laughs> yeah, that was pre-internet and pre-email yeah. and, yeah. <laughs> uh, what about Troy or Mitch or Dogger, any of those guys? Uh, Mitch, I restored up. A Hodaka for him back in the probably in the nineties, and I was in Fresno, so that was five hour drive to get down to Pro Circuit. That was when they were over uh, on La Palma, yeah. right? 
and um brought that was a, a hodaka super rat and um he loved it so on and so forth then he called me one day and he goes hey this thing's leaking all over the floor i'm like you've had it for months what do you mean it's leaking on the floor he goes ah, there's a puddle of oil underneath it can you come get it and fix it and i was like yeah i guess it's a 10 hour round trip right so i put a new gasket on it and i drained the oil out of it and uh took it back down and then it was many years later like five six years we're doing the Yamaha Race of Champions, and Pro Circuit was one of the sponsors for it. And we were having a viewing party for when they actually aired it on TV, right? And um, Mitch shows up, and he's got the invoice from that Hodaka from like six, seven years ago. He goes, hey, come here. I want to talk to you about this. Huh? What? He goes, you charged me $300 for a brand new OEM chrome Hodaka gas tank. That seems like a lot. Like, Mitch, I'm right in, I got a hundred people here. <laughs> Can we talk about this on Monday? And he's like, no, I need to talk about it right now. He goes, $300. Like, yeah, that seems like a pretty good deal for a brand new gas day. He goes, me too. I just wanted to fuck with you. <laughs> that sounds like it, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. Make you all uncomfortable <laughs> and nervous. Oh. He just loves to have you in that state. He knew because of the whole... I think somebody poured oil underneath it from in the shop, right? They went out in the showroom, poured oil underneath it because it was there for three months. Yeah, why? Why would it start leaking? I was gonna. T I thought you were gonna tell me someone was riding it or something. Yeah, no. Well, it wasn't Mitch. <laughs> it wasn't Mitch. Um, I want to chat a little bit about uh, what happened with your family, man, because uh, you're you lost your son right. five years ago. Three, three. Um. And it's tragic. Obviously, every parent's worst nightmare. But it has led to something cool that you guys are doing. So, yeah, tell us what happened and kind of what's come out of that. Yeah. Well, my my son Max Dowdy um, took his own life um, early December of 2019. And um, it, as you said, it's the worst thing that any parent could think would would happen, right? And and it. It is so mind altering because from the time they're, from the time that you know you're pregnant, right, with your wife, you have hopes and dreams. Mm -hmm. And as you raise your child, you have your hopes and dreams get bigger and more specific. And you just, you know, they, they have a personality and, and uh, they have talents and all that stuff. So you, you're way deep into that commitment mentally and emotionally in the day that they die it's like it's it's gone and your brain can't comprehend that it's gone your brain can't comprehend them all, all the almost 30 years of investment and i'm not talking about financial investment I'm, you, you have your heart and soul into your kids right it's gone. It's never going to be realized. And um, I spent two weeks just literally in an emotional fog. I mean, it, it was going to be 
three weeks or four weeks before we could have his celebration in life. But I spent two weeks that I, I would just wake up every morning crying. Mm. I'd be crying before I was awake, you know, and, and I, I am not unique in that regard. And I don't mean to sound like a woe is me. I'm, I think any parent would, would go through this and probably has. It's, it's, it's so surreal. I mean, they, you know, the only unconditional love, in my opinion, is your kids and dog. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, you love your spouse, but, you know, if it didn't work out, they'd move on, you'd move on, whatever. But it's, it's not supposed to be. We're not wired that way to lose a child. Mm. Yeah, so it's like a disruption of the natural order of things and... um and, and as much as, 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 you know, you, your children struggle at, at various things, you still, you know, if you're an optimist, they'll get through this, they'll mature, they'll, they'll go on to have families and, you know, be successful and so on and so forth. Um, and when that stops, I didn't know what to do. I think. Yeah, it seems like there's guy you, you you'd have to go talk to somebody who's been through it or someone that's trained to like help you through that. That isn't something I think you go through on your own. I, I mean, I tried to do all that. I didn't know anybody else that had been through it. Um, I, I certainly called a counselor because I think counseling, it, just like motocross trainers and all, absolutely have a place, and they can they can be that person on the you know, the one step removed that can help you through. So I, I, I didn't hesitate about that, but, um, it, it, I remember coming home that night from the hospital. Well, let me back up after I got the phone call. Uh, they didn't know if he had passed away or not, but you have children you'll understand this. You, there's some sort of sense that you have of your children. You feel that I don't know how you describe it, but there's a, a, a force, a sense of energy that your kids have and you feel it. Your, your wife feels it. I didn't feel it. Oh, really? You could, you... I, I was driving there and I couldn't feel him anymore. Mm. So. God, that's heavy. When, when I got there, the, the police took me in a room and said he didn't make it. And I said, yeah, no, I know they didn't need to tell me. And, and I knew from that moment forward, uh, this is, I'm never going to be the same. This is, this is going to change me. And I didn't know how, but I knew it was going to change me. And after I struggled through all of that, um, I woke up one morning and, you know, same MO, tears streaming down my face. And I, ha and I've always been one that's been open to whatever. I don't shut things down. Um, I, it was like a telepathic vision, but I'm wide awake. I'm sitting up in, in my bed and I could see a vision 
of a black lab on the outside of a sliding glass door in the rain. And my head's going, well, what is going on? I'm, I'm losing my mind because I'm having, I, I'm have, I see a vision and it's not foggy, it's clear. And I got this sense of calm. It's Max. He made a decision that he shouldn't have. He's on the other side of this sliding glass door in the rain. And he just wants me to know he's okay. And as soon as my brain, I'm having this internal conversation. He said, now you got it. And I could hear his voice. And, and it wasn't audible. It was internal. And I went downstairs and, and just sobbed and told my wife what happened. And ever since that day, I've been connected because I said, okay, you're in a different dimension than I'm in now, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to cut off my communication or your communication with me. And, um, communicate with me anytime you want to. And I know it sounds freaky, but, um, I think if, I think once you're attached to your children, you're always attached to your children and they, and they to you. And if you stay open to different kinds of communication, not the ones you've had in the past, it's not like, I think he's just going to show up again. Um, then I, I think there's something there to be had. Mm. I, I could give you a whole bunch of examples, but, um, my dad died the year before, uh, Max. And so we were having the, uh, celebration of life and out of the blue over in Corona, you know, where the Dos Lagos area is. Yeah. So we were having it over there. My dad was a fighter pilot. And are you familiar with the missing man mm -hmm. formation? War, war, World War II planes, low altitude, missing man formation, right over the, the restaurant, banked around, came back over and disappeared. Mm. Everybody in the parking lot saw it. Like, what the hell? Why would that happen? Right, World War II era stuff. And my brother said, Dad's watching out for him. He just wanted you to know. So there again, you know, like, I don't know why those things happen, but I do know that if you pay attention, there's, there's something to be had there. So long story short, I make a better advocate than a victim. So I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something and I knew how I felt, and if I could help any other parents get through that period of time, I wanted to do that. But if I could help any people, not just kids, but people not get to that point where they're so desperate they take their life, right? Mm -hmm. Then, you know, there's a saying in the Bible, um, as we restore others, we too are restored. 
So if I could help people that get to that precipice of taking their life to reconsider, and if I could help any parents that have to deal with that outcome, if it doesn't go uh, a good way, I, I want to commit myself to trying to do that. And it's not easy. You know, I was pretty aimless at what to do. So I've, I've tried on a a couple of different organizations that didn't work real well. They didn't fit and nothing against them, but it just didn't work. And they weren't set up for what we needed to do. And, um, another one of those revelation uh, moments, I got a call from somebody and they said, Hey, we just had a, uh, an event and we were talking about Max Matters and the whole deal. And this young woman came up and said, I want to talk to that person being me. Can you get in touch with them? And, uh, I said, well, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Here's my phone number. Get it to her. And she called, we talked. She said, well, I, I've been in the motorcycle and mountain bike industry for a long time. Um, we have mutual friends. I've tried to commit suicide twice. And, um, after the second time I decided that I was going to, um, educate myself and become a crisis counselor, so on and so forth. And I heard about what you're doing and I want to be involved. I was like, that's sensational. I, how, I don't know what we're going to do, but it'd be great to have somebody like you on board. I said, by the way, what's your name? She said, Max. So her, her name's Maxine Irving. Um, she's gotten more done in like a couple of weeks than I ever thought we'd be able to do. Um, she comes from an empathetic point of view. Um, I'm really hopeful we'll just be able to help some people. Yeah. You know, that's... The, you, we're not going to stop all suicide in the world. Um, we're not going to help every parent. Um, but if we can start with making it easier to find help, that's that's our primary goal. So we have maxmatters.org. And if you're in a crisis, you can go there and say, I need help now. Push a button. You don't have to read yeah. a bunch of crap. You just push a button and you'll get connected with somebody. Well, and it's something we don't, that doesn't... It, for whatever reason, too much ego, too much testosterone, it doesn't get discussed in this sport. And, and I think probably all sports, but motocross is bad. And we've lost some guys right. to this. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm off the top of my head, I can think of three guys who've taken their own life in our little space. Right. And um, even more who've been very close. Right. Um, you know, I know some of those same guys. And so, just to talk about, just to have, just for some of these, I listened to the first podcast you guys did and I thought, man, this is a great start. Just for people who are getting into that bad headspace to be able to listen, know there's a place to reach out to, man, it's a huge service. And, and you know, um, if you're a thinking person, you've thought about suicide because it's always an option, right? It's, it's not like a secret. Because you thought about it doesn't mean you're crazy. If you have depression, doesn't mean you're crazy or if you have anxiety, but you, it's not a healthy state of mind to be in mm -hmm. and you need to get some help to get through that, that time period. And you know, once you get an effective counselor and they, they work well with you, 
you can talk through a lot of stuff and see it through a different lens and, 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 and develop a plan. And when you have a plan versus no plan, it's a game changer. Yeah. Right. And suicide's the permanent solution to a temporary problem. Right. And it, it happens typically when people are, they, the, the pastor that came to our event for Max put it very succinctly. Only people who have lost all hope do this. Mm. And, and if we can, if we can help bring some hope, you know, to get them the, through the next 15 minutes, uh, half an hour, the next day, whatever, just not that moment. One of the things, Marty Motes was a dear friend of mine, and he took his life. And you notice, I don't have a problem talking about that because I'm not embarrassed for Marty. I'm not embarrassed for Max. Um, you know, there was internet threads. And lots of people get on and talk about, you know, say different comments about what was going on with Marty and so on and so forth. And one guy really pissed me off. And, and this comment just in general pisses me off. That's, he took the coward's way out. And you know what I told him? If you think it's the coward's way out, try it. <laughs> see, see how much strength it would take to do that, to overcome your natural sense of preservation. That's, but it, you know, when, when you get depressed, when you are having a, 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 a bad episode, whatever the situation is, and we've all had them, whether, whether it's with our kids or with our parents or spouse work. I mean, there's a lot of things where you just go, screw it. Why do I want to do this anymore? I'm just yeah. beating my head against the wall and it's not getting me anywhere. Yeah. Well, that may be true, but there's other ways to go, other routes to take and other people to be with. And, you know, that's all it takes is to have another avenue of hope. Sure. Yeah. So well, it's, it's something that's important to me and I, and I, I wish we would have made more progress by now, but uh, I don't give up easy. Yeah, that's obvious. Uh, where can people find that podcast? Maxmatters.org. Okay. And that, that website's going to continue to uh, evolve. But again, we don't want to make a website to where people have to go and just read a bunch of stuff. We, we want it to be a resource. We're not going to be dispensing counseling ourselves because we're not qualified. I'm qualified as a parent to talk about losing a child. That's it. Hmm professionals need to be able to help the, the, the people who are really in crisis. And, you know, uh, I wasn't, was not even aware that there are uh, crisis stabilization units. Are, are you familiar with those? Just from talking to you. Oh yeah. But I mean, you're, you're in the med industry and I never even heard of it. What's it's great. Cause you can go to one of those and say, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm in crisis mode and they'll take care of you. Yeah. For, you know, however long it need, you need to get stable and they, they can hook you up with counselors and, and, and all the aftermath. Cause you know, just because you didn't follow through this time doesn't mean you're cured. Yeah. Well, there's, there's multiple ways it can outcome. Sonny Garcia was a good friend of mine and one of the toughest. Oh, absolutely. 
gnarliest guys I've ever known. And I, and I would ask him about his depression, you know, and he goes, man, I said, can't you just think about your kids and just like focus on something good, your bikes, you know, you love to ride, man, go riding. Right. He goes, when it comes on me, all I can do is curl up in a ball in my closet. He goes, you don't understand how strong it is. Yeah. And I'm like, when, when we had that talk, I was just like, yeah, I, I don't understand it. Right. Cause like, I just can't imagine being in that place. And, but if it's crumpling you, that's pretty heavy. Cause he's not a, a guy who easily buckles, you right. know. Well, uh, but and, the way he, the way it played out for him, you know, yeah, just it's no that, better than him being gone. It's tragic. Yeah, I, I don't know because I don't suffer from severe depression. I mean, I think everybody gets depressed. Sure. Um, but from some of the people that I have talked to, they won't even drink water. Like, why would you not drink water? Because then I'd have to get up and go to the bathroom. Mm. And and it's it's that level of despair. Yeah. That um. You know, it's it's debilitating. Right. And 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 again, I'm not qualified to help somebody with that, but we ought to be able to create a really easy to access um, line of communication with somebody who can. Right. And and now there's a national um, suicide hotline. There's a text line. There's these crisis stabilization units. There's a bunch of things. It's it's kind of a cause celeb in the, in the world right now. And I'm glad mm-hmm. because it's been underserved for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for those people that suffer from that, they almost feel isolated even more because when he'll tell, you know, when he told me that, I'm like, man, I just can't even... I can't even imagine being that overcome with that. Right. So then they feel like, well, yeah, I, I must be really weird. I must be, you know, I must be something wrong with me. Right. So I, I don't know if, like, I look back at that conversation and go, man, maybe I shouldn't have said that to him. Maybe I should have, you know, and I just went, dude, you got to, you, you need to talk to somebody that can help you. Yeah. But he knows and, and the other people that I've spoken with that, that really suffer from depression, they know not everybody feels that way they also know they're not crazy, but you know, it's like anything else. You've got to get the the proper kind yeah. of help. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there are people that understand it, other people, and it can help you work through it. Well, and, and you just have to reach out. And Maxine Irving that is, is working with us. She understands from, you know, being a victim of, mm-hmm. of severe de- depression. Yeah. What a great resource. Someone who's been to that precipice like you talked about yeah and and she comes from an empathetic point of view so she's steering all the stuff and you know i'm just trying to help with the business end of it and um i'm just really thankful that she's she's come our way and her name's mac yeah that's that's (laughs) crazy another uh message to you it yeah it's it's not crazy but it is good well uh we appreciate you talking about it and and sharing your whole story uh man you've been I really value folks who've been around this industry for a long time and are still connected and engaged. And I know you watch current racing and you're still following vintage and involved. And we're going to, you know, there's not that many people that can, that have been around since that, the inception for the most part. Yeah. So I appreciate your opinion and you're fortunate. Yeah, you really are. Well, thanks for coming on. Always great, great catching up. Great to see you. Maxmatters.org. Uh, we will, we will continue to promote that through our site and, um, As new podcasts come out, we'll promote that as well. Uh, Appreciate your time. Stick around, guys. We'll be back to wrap up the show. 
If you or someone you know is struggling, there is help. Go to maxmatters.org or call or text 988. You are not alone. All right, folks, thank you for tuning into the Whiskey Throttle Show. I want to thank Rick Dowdy for taking the time to come in. Uh, certainly a colorful career and history in our sport. Uh, you ever need something for a vintage bike or question about vintage racing, he's the guy to go to. Uh, so we appreciate them, uh, Rick, for taking his time to come in. Thanks for tuning in. Please support the folks uh, that support us. That keeps this show coming to you. Uh, we appreciate them. We make sure they're all elite level brands and uh, only quality products. So thank you guys for tuning in. See you on the next show. The Whiskey Throttle Show is brought to you by Yamaha. Join the Blue Crew today and take advantage of all that Yamaha has to offer, including amateur racing trackside support, awesome Yamaha contingency, Jason Rain's demos and instructional classes, and frankly, the most high-performing motorcycles available on the market today. Whether you're looking for a four-stroke, a two-stroke, a side-by-side, a quad, a boat, a generator, Yamaha prides themselves on absolute top-level quality and reliability. Rev your heart with Yamaha and join the Blue Crew today. Method Race Wheels, bringing you the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off-road for your truck, van, sprinter, UTV, or SUV. They've been dominating the Baja 500 and 1000 and every major off-road event around the world for years with high quality and performance. They also look amazing. They come in a bunch of different styles and colors for your rig, so check them out. You can get 20% off a set of wheels using our code WhiskeyThrottle. No capitals, no spaces. 20% off using our code. Check them out. Troy Lee Designs is the leader in off-road motocross apparel and style. So whether you're looking for a cool new paint job for your helmet, maybe your name and number on your helmet lettered on, you're looking for new gear, you're looking for mountain bike gear, off-road gear, they've got the brand new Scout line and GP and SE models. Troy Lee Designs has it all. They've been leading this industry for decades, and they're going to continue to do it. Check out TroyLeeDesigns.com. SKDA is a moto graphics and seat covers company with several offices based around the globe. For too long, bikes and graphics have all looked the same. They just start to blend together. SKDA is working to change that. With super clean and unique design work, a bike with SKDA graphics stands out in a crowd and adds a touch of art to the world of moto. Hey, we need that. SKDA prides itself on providing premium customer service both before and after the sale is made. Visit SKDA online to view the current product range and get in touch with their team to get your bike refreshed. I want to just make a mention here that these guys, not only is their design way outside the box, very, very cool. They'll work with you on custom things. The, the products are incredible, okay? They'll speak for themselves. But what's really awesome, and you'll notice this the minute you order one of these, man, they give you an email saying, hey, the product's been shipped. Uh, hey, the product is here. It landed in this spot. Hey, it's coming today. Hey, your product's been delivered. They, they're just so good about staying in touch with you and letting you know where it's at. Customer service is 100%, and uh, that's just something that's rare these days. Check out SKDA. Here at the Whiskey Throttle Show, we're all about supporting brands that support our sport. And there's one tire company that has never walked away from the sport of motocross and supercross, and it's Dunlop. When times got tough and the economy took a crash, Dunlop stepped up and stayed with our sport to support it and the athletes and individuals that love it. Their MX-53 line and MX-33 lines absolutely dominate this sport. Every national championship at the pro level has been won in the last decade, and nearly every single amateur national championship at Loretta Lynn's has been won on a Dunlop. So if you're looking for high performance, you're looking for amazing quality, and you're looking to support a brand that never turns its back on our sport, there's only one choice for you, and it's Dunlop. 
ProCircuit is the leader in aftermarket performance and quality. Whether you're looking for a little more horsepower out of your engine, some quality hard parts to improve the way your bike feels and looks, better handling through suspension or linkage or linkage arms, Pro Circuit is where you need to stop. It's your one-stop shop. You can go in there and get everything you need to make your motorcycle go from average to exceptional. Pro Circuit's got enough number one plates on their wall to side an entire home, and there's a reason for that. They're very, very good at what they do. Uh, the highest quality products with one goal in mind, and that's winning. Check out ProCircuit.com. Nihilo Concepts is leading the way in aftermarket hard parts. With their secondary on-switch device, something that was much needed in this sport, they've been innovating and bringing new products to market. Their latest is the new Nihilo Run-Cool Brake Pistons. They're designed to be stronger than stock and provide exceptional cooling performance with less brake drag. Most OEM calipers pistons are made from aluminum that just can't hold it to the heat and extreme demands of serious racing. When they get hot, the aluminum will distort, causing loss of hydraulic pressure and brake failure. Nihilo's run-cool pistons limit the area that boiling hot hydraulic fluid is able to come in contact with the piston, leaving two-thirds of the piston volume in open air with breather holes to enhance the cooling ability. It's made of a proprietary stainless blend, which is better at dissipating heat. You have issues with brake fade or brake failure, check out Nihilo Concepts among their many amazing hard parts and carbon fiber parts and titanium. NihiloConcepts.com. Seat Concepts is the leader in motorcycle saddles. If you're looking for a new cover or a new seat entirely, Seat Concepts is the place to go. They make custom seat foams catered to your height, weight, riding ability, riding type. They also have waterproof covers and, and foams that will not break down if you ride in a lot of inclement weather. And they pride themselves on being much more comfortable than OEM or any other aftermarket company. If you're looking for a new seat or a new cover, Seat Concepts, there's nothing better. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the Polaris RZR 800s, Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the if you've got a little Grom that's looking to get started in the motorcycle world, the best way to get them going is on a Stasic bike. They've got multiple sizes, so from your very young Groms to those who are a little more grown up, you can start them safely. They've got controls that allow you to control the speed so he can't get going too quick. They can touch the ground. There's not a lot of noise to distract them. It's the perfect way to get your child involved in motorcycling at a very young age. And if you've got a kid who's already out ripping, there's series popping up all over. For those of you in Southern California, go to www.ameminicross.com and join their local series. If you're outside of this state, contact your local track and ask them about starting a Stasic class at your local track. Get over to Stasic.com and check out all they've got going on. Motul USA, uh, we, we lean hard on these lubricants to keep us 
uh, on the track and on the trail. And Motul has proven their quality over and over, uh, most recently with their Dakar win with Ricky Brabeck. Uh, they're sponsoring Supercross teams. They're diving into our sport again full full throttle, and uh, we're stoked to have them on board. Amazing products, top to bottom. Motul USA. Go check them out. And finally, last but not least, specialized bicycles. If you are in the market to start pedaling, this is where you want to start. Uh, they've got great entry-level bikes all the way up to the Cadillac, the new Levo um, e-bike. Uh, any, anything in between, man. It doesn't matter what kind of riding you're doing. Go check out and start with Specialized. Don't waste your time on something that's going to break. The derailleur's not going to shift after a couple months. Get something quality. Uh, these guys make it. Specialized leads that industry. Thanks for watching and listening to the Whiskey Throttle Show. Be sure to like and subscribe to get notified when new shows go up. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And visit whiskeythrottlemedia.com for additional content.